Yeah, oh, there you go. Oh, yeah, I had a refill. That's exactly what I just asked. So you're refreshing your drink. <laughs> All right. Okay, let's roll. Yeah, let's roll. Good thing your wife's not around. It's like, well, I try to start early, be starting late. <laughs> the weird scenes inside the gold mine your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment tonight tony perkins and the new and improved third eye cinema weird scenes network now on podbean Second episode of the 13th season of Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, Mr. Lewis Paul, the maven of sleaze, virago, vituperiveness, and uh, experimenter of all things, <laughs> of all things prurient, <laughs> apparently. As we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. So, like I said, I am Doc Savage. With me is Mr. Lewis Paul. Lewis. <laughs> Hello. Yeah, after that uh, sign-off there, I was like, wow. <laughs> hey, good for you. I mean, jeez. Uh, wow. Anyway. I got to my reputation. <laughs> yeah, God bless you. So, we go to season 13 with yet another... <laughs> I can't even get started after that. <laughs> Quite an intro. <clears throat> yes. We kick off season 13 with yet another of the great character actors of our time. With his quirky, sensitive demeanor and strong hints of a darker undertone to his persona, he was perhaps unusually often cast as an off-kilter romantic lead, the sort of oddball outsider character later assayed by the likes of Christian Slater or Crispin Glover. But it was his shockingly convincing portrait of Norman Bates for the great subversive film technician Alfred Hitchcock that both defined and for a large part of his career thereafter, typecast him domestically for a series of darker, more villainous if not psychotic roles thereafter, having starred with the likes of Brigitte Bardot, Sophia Loren, Audrey Hepburn, Fred Astaire, Orson Welles, Sean Connery, Roger Moore, and Paul Newman, he moved from domestic churn-em-out studio fare to a far more interesting sideline in the French cinema of the 60s and early 70s. Briefly settling into the more auteurist work of 70s British and American film, he took a deep dive into cult cinema throughout the 80s, working for folks like Ken Russell and bringing his Bates character back for a better-than-average slasher series based on the 1960 original. Co-writing the highly subtextual The Last of Sheila with then-partner and musical theater impresario Stephen Sondheim, he further tried his hand at directing, first in two stage productions and later a pair of films, one of which he starred in. He even had a short-lived sideline in Schmaltz, releasing four albums in the late 50s and early 60s, which showed him, perhaps surprisingly, possessed of a pleasant syrupy tone, very much along the lines of Jack Jones. Show to join us tonight as we discuss the multi-layered Tony Perkins, only here on Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine. Born right here in Manhattan at the height of the Depression back in 1932, he was effectively a single-parent child with his absentee father, a fellow character actor. Apparently his biggest break was the supporting role in Scarface, the Paul Mooney one, 1931, who further passed when Tony was only five years old. The reason he wound up doing quite so many French cult films was that he was fluent thanks to being raised by a French nanny. 
His mother, according to some sources close to the Perkins family, may also have been bisexual if not exclusively lesbian in Perkins Sr.'s absence, and by his own account was oddly and perhaps overly touchy-feely with him right up through his adult years. As such, in being raised by and not exclusively exposed to a pair of women in his formative years, his later rather gender-fluid persona and penchant towards neurotic tics is perhaps unsurprising. As credit to his intelligence and self-awareness, he recognized a particularly prominent edible issue that led him to a bizarre Catholic guilt where he half-blamed himself for his father's demise, and all of this combined with the better part of his relationship with said father being through watching him on screen, made this blend of primal psychological and existential issues loom heavily over his young life, and inarguably a lot of this inner conflict and turmoil comes out in his performances, from his earliest odd romantic leads to his final more screen villain slash red herring work, 80s and 90s. Also, perhaps interestingly, given his decidedly particular inflections on screen, he was a stutterer in his early years and teens, very likely due to emotional trauma both at home and due to his school experiences, where he was, again, as savvy folks may have sussed out, for being, quote, different and not fitting in with the crowd. Being largely closeted throughout his life, he did actually marry a fellow actress and had two kids, despite having known relationships with folks like Tab Hunter and the aforementioned Stevenson Sondheim, among others. And there are many quotes and anecdotes from fellow actors and actresses like Audrey Hepburn that he was very much and well-known in Hollywood as being a gay man, and in fact got out of the draft by saying he was, which apparently led to a nasty, abusive experience at the draft office from this. By all accounts, despite his multi-layered and hard-to-read, rather private persona, he was a likable, vulnerable, and sympathetic guy, very much on the right side of history politically and socially, and a very good actor. Somewhere between the Clark Gable School of Say Your Lines, Hate Your Marks, and Get Out of There, and the new Strasburg Method School that was blowing up at the time, he wasn't really either, but he fit into a bit of both. Anyway, you sliced it, it's plain from what he delivers right there on screen, whether in the early, rather bizarre attempts to make him a teen idol, his fascinating French film work, the troubled madman roles that followed Psycho, or his outright villainy in later films like Folks and Winter Kills, that the man was channeling a lot of stuff into his performances, lending him a real gravitas that you simply don't find with other, equally riveting character actors like Roddy McDowell or Donald Pleasance. Whatever role he's saying, however small it may be, you're instantly paying attention to him at the expense of the rest of the cast, because he never quite fits and draws the locus of the film to himself and what he's doing. And in terms of acting, there simply is no higher praise. So this was actually somebody that I suggested, but it was eye-opening watching these things. I'm like, geez, this guy's much better than we give him credit for. So, Well, no, you hit all the deep marks. He also, Anthony Perkins had a very strange delivery. Now, we should always remember while tackling this subject that he, he was so much a theater person. You know, uh, summer stock from 47 to 50. The guy was a kid. You know, a lot of people did summer stocks. So what summer stock is, is uh, you have off-Broadway and Broadway, and then you have shows that travel to, like, you know, Vermont, you know, uh, Kansas. Touring companies that do dinner theater and things dinner like that. Dinner theater type things, you know, and and – and and so often a lot of people got their start in summer stock and sometimes waning career superstars went back to summer stock to like just get a refresher uh so yeah so he he did a lot of theater before he even did film and then their college and you know between summer stock and college i'm, I'm sure they very handsome uh, Anthony Perkins uh, experimented with bisexuality. Let's leave it at that. We're not making anything uh, here. You know, it's like you do what you do. Yeah. But he did develop these odd actorial texts in his performance at uh, points in his career. What they would do to, I don't know. 
he's never been someone who and I know was open about his personal life. Uh, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like everybody knew he was gay. Yeah, even his wife. Yeah, apparently uh, everybody knew he was gay, but he wasn't necessarily sure he was. Sometimes true, and we never heard anything about deep hardcore drug usage. No, but, not, not at all. No, not at all. But but there was a lot of psychosis stuff going on with him. You know, and yeah, he had a troubled upbringing is the bottom line, uh, and he dealt with it through his acting. Also, I was reading a lot about him for the show that, you know, um, he lost a lot of roles. He was going to do Tony in West Side Story. And then Paramount's president said, no, like, you're gay. You're not going to do it because it's going to come out. And it never did until in the more refined years when everybody didn't give, oh, you're gay for so, <laughs> you know. <laughs> But right. back in these, you know, Rock Hudson, George Nader, all these guys we've discussed in the past. But, you know, in these days, they were afraid that, hell, Doris Day. What do we know about Doris Day? Just came oh, to yeah. me. Just came <laughs> to me. Damn it. But even, even if it wasn't the issue that, okay, this was technically illegal and they didn't want to ruin your reputation as a star and all this kind of crap that was going on back in the 50s and even to some extent the 60s, right. Unfortunately, the bottom line was they were trying to market him originally in this country as some sort of a teen idol. Oh, they did so, this with so many guys, so many guys. So they didn't want people to know, oh, yeah, he doesn't like girls. <laughs> you know, he was trying to sell this guy to girls. So there you yeah, go. yeah, it's not, yeah, it's not like he doesn't like little Nancy. He wants Tony's big dick. Yeah, it's not, <laughs> well, no, I, well, well, not his own, but, you know, I'm sure it's just, another guy. I didn't think you meant him. That'd be different. That'd be like a Ron Jeremy thing. <laughs> no, I see. I wasn't going there, but I sure said like some other guy. It's, it's okay. You know, I, I've been around myself. No, not that way though. Don't get no, 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 don't go there. So this is why people listen to us. Yes. <laughs> you know, we would be the best-selling Blu-ray. Audio commentary of all time. If we have it's true. You get all the facts, you get all the erudite analysis, deep insights into what really makes these people tick and what people these films are about. spitting out their beer where I listen. And then we create these great anecdotes <laughs> on the sides. They're like, what the <laughs> Oh, my God. They went there? Okay. <laughs> you see, we, we can pull it off. Of course. Because we do while still remaining civil and respectful. Yes, of course. I, I've only read few very negative ones but a guy actually blocked him <laughs> no not the usual guy some other guy I'll tell you about it one day um so anyway <laughs> let's get going yeah so he did a couple of films early on i don't know if they're really worth addressing from 1953 to 1957 you know basically just bit parts you know promising newcomer he got nominated for things like that but i think his first important film if you want to call it that was 1958's desire under the elms 50s and early 60s sex spots Sophia Loren of Firepower and our Richard Harris shows Cassandra Crossing stars in this bathetic and turgic adaptation of the overrated Eugene O'Neill's play of the same name. Rudolph's snowman narrator and folky Burl Ives' silver and gold plays against his usual likable old man type as the shithead old farmer who literally worked two wives to death and is now pulling the same crap, presumably minus the grubby old man's sex, with his sons, TV's Trapper John M.D., Pernell Roberts, and Tony Perkins. In a blatant biblical swipe, Perkins' Jacob outsmarts Roberts' Esau to scam the inheritance out of Ives so that he'll own the farm while Roberts heads off to find a new life elsewhere. Problem is, Ives managed to scam yet another wife, the much younger and earthier Loren, who obviously has some needs an old fat guy can't fulfill. It's just like Phaedra, which we'll talk about later, but with a much younger and better-looking stepmom. 
Perkins, supposedly anyway, fucks his new stepmom, who apparently swings Republican as she never heard of birth control. They fool lives into thinking that that's a virgin birth, or that his stale old sperm suddenly became viable, which works until Perkins admits he wishes that she had never had the brat, so Loren goes around and kills it. Perkins is weirded out, he calls the cops, but he's so smitten and filled with false Catholic guilt over this, he acts like he was party to the infanticide. So rather than just arresting Loren, they take him in for no apparent reason. Guilt by association? Talk about Kafka. A profoundly stupid hick film that makes Baby Doll seem like a masterpiece of slick, compelling urbanity by comparison. It's amazing to me that this film, and O'Neill for that matter, have remained strangely highly regarded in certain circles. Much like Flannery O'Connor, there's really no point to all this wallowing in white trash poverty and misery. What's next, exalting Gretchen Wilson, a redneck woman, to the annals of great contemporary literature? It's pure crap, and the celebration of this dog shit exemplifies everything I hate about mainstream criticism and self-congratulatory Hollywood elitism. I despise this film, and it was a horrible view. What's your take? <laughs> well, Eugene O'Neill is one of the most respected playwrights in American theater. God's <laughs> but I'm not saying everything he has done is amazing. What's really interesting about this is that, you know, Italian starlet, because she was still very young, Sophia Loren, you know, shit. You know, I think it was her first role over here. One of our first roles over here, yeah. And, you know, Pernell Roberts later in uh, lots of fun movies. I like that guy. Frank Overton as well. He was another interesting uh, actor. Delbert you know, some buzz, electronic buzz on your mic sometimes. When oh, you get sorry. close, I guess. Okay. Good morning. Okay. Sorry. Don't worry about it. Delbert Mann, who had a long, long career as a film director and a theatrical director, did this. That was a weird movie. Um, it's always iffy when you adapt like well-known plays for the for, for the cinema, you know, it either works or it doesn't. One you did miss, and he was actually nominated for Golden Globe, Anthony Perkins, was Friendly Persuasion, an old Gary Cooper picture from 1956. That's the second film, actually. Yeah, it's the second film. It's a Civil War drama. I didn't like this at all, so you would therefore probably hate yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> Most likely. It's a very old-fashioned kind of thing about farmer, uh, which is Cooper, patriarch of the family. I mean, you know, Peter Mark Richmond's in this when he was a kid. So it gives you an idea how far way back in the Wayback Machine this was. A lot of people like this. They tried to sell it as a family film, but it was like really depressing post, post-depression, post-our depression and post-American depression by like, I don't know, 30, almost 30 years. Civil War drama film about a family. They were Quakers. And they were just trying to deal with, you know, the, the Quakers. You know the story about the Quakers. Yeah. They, you know, they don't like to participate in anything. And the Civil War is happening. And so it tests their beliefs of the entire family. It's not a bad film. It's directed by William Wyler. It's just a very heavy film for that, for that time period. But uh, Perkins is in it in a major role. It's one of the sons, I believe. Another thing is Fear Strikes Out, directed by Robert Mulligan. There's another director who had a really long career. This is about a baseball, a real-life baseball player, Jim Purcell, who's in the Boston Red Sox. And uh, what was the problem? I remember seeing this a lot on TV back in the late 60s, early 70s. He had some issues, like psychological. Carl Molden played his dad, I think. It got a lot of play because it was like one of the few films that deal with schizophrenia or madness. And this was a, a actually well-known and very good baseball player 
Michael Perkins had played. I remember seeing this a lot. So then we, yeah, Desire Under the Elms. And then, yeah, because there are a couple of other films, but we can't hit everything in this. Yeah. So where are we going to next? I was going to do Green Mansions, but I want to let you know, I don't know what's going on. As you talk, this electronic goes, goes really? it keeps getting louder and it's very strange. Probably something to do with your setup. How's this? Should, right now it's fine. Yeah. Okay, maybe I had something turned up. That could be. All right, so right now it sounds fine. <laughs> Hopefully it'll go away. You fixed it in the past. That's why I was like, hey, before this goes on too long. So anyway, uh, yeah, Green Matches, 1959. Directed by Mel Ferrer of our Tony Curtis show, Sex and the Single Girl. Roger Vadim's Blood and Roses. Sergio Diamartino's The Antichrist. Lindsay's Nightmare City. And Toby Hooper's Eaten Alive. The last three being from our Italian sleaze and Toby Hooper shows. This is one of his only three directorial credits, designed as a showcase for then-wife Audrey Hepburn of our Humphrey Bogart show's ridiculous geriatric wish-fulfillment opus, Sabrina, and our Sean Connery show's maudlin and depressing Robin and Marion. Perkins is the unlikely adventure hero in the vein of King Solomon's Mines or Doc Savage, only he's a complete dick. My father was killed by a pack of savages, not your kind, civilized ones with uniforms and honorable names. Perkins is wandering around the jungles on the run from Contras or Sandinistas or some shit and trying to find a legendary stash of gold so he can get revenge on the military for offing dear old dad. Sesame Hayakawa, silent film star and exotic sex symbol to American flappers, who's probably best known for starring with anime Wong and Warner Oland in the Fu Manchu-esque Yellow Peril Precode Talkie, Daughter of the Dragon, is the soupal haircut-sporting jungle native chief, and Eurocrime and Policio Tashi standby Henry Silva is another native in the tribe who speaks halting English for some stupid reason. He manages to get off some ridiculous legend of a white jungle girl who protects the gold out of them, and heads off in search of, wait for it, 70s comic fans. Rima the Jungle Girl. That's right. The DC Comics sporting one of the many Filipino artists both Marvel and DC used for lesser titles and short-lived magazines back then. Nestor Redondo. Also of the pre-Alan Moore Swamp thing, if memory serves. Somehow arose from this shitty no-budget Tarzan knockoff. So anyway, it all turns into the expected jungle romance, despite some backstabbing from various natives and Hepburn's nasty old grandfather. And there's a happy ending. Yay! Before she began to really show her shaky-headed mother's bad genetics, Hepburn in these days was pretty damn cute in a waif-like twiggy sort of a way. She was far more photogenic than she ever pulled it off as an on-screen presence, and this is one of her more fetching roles. However, overclothed and prim she still comes off compared to the preco Maureen O'Sullivan or the smoking-hot Irish McCallas, Sheen of the Jungle, a decade or so prior. But there's no mistaking this as a bad film, and it was in fact such a box office poison flop that it killed both Ferrer's attempt at a directorial career and an intended cycle of films he was planning to showcase wifey Hepburn in in one fell swoop. But honestly, who casts a girl in this kind of role and then leaves her fully clothed in a burlap sack throughout or casts Tony Perkins as the manly romantic lead adventurer? What the fuck were they thinking? <laughs> What's your take? Yeah, in the way you're right about all of this. One of the things is, uh, you know... I... <laughs> A jungle girl, female Tarzan. Let's just say, you know, female Tarzan type character. You, you had to use somebody voluptuous. In the okay, 1959. No, there were there were still people who could have filled it out the costume and, and you know still be within the code of decency. <laughs> um, Audrey Hepburn was always like wayfish and gamine. Yes, exactly. I mean, you you if you go to a department store. And uh, some of those department stores don't have figured mannequins. Mannequins. Yeah, they're just whatever. 
Uh, <laughs> they're, they're non-gender. So it's like, that was hard. I, I don't understand the appeal at all of Audrey Hepburn. Never have. She's so beautiful. Yeah, she's like a skinny twink. That's the thing. It's like the the face is pretty. You know, she's got that sort of, okay, well, you know, she's attractive enough look, the elfin sort of a thing. But she's got no body whatsoever. And she's so, you know, I guess she takes after her mother being really prim. It's like, I don't know. I just don't get it. I don't uh, get the love. She always, she always struck me as like a dude who's like really thin who puts on makeup. <laughs> Um, they would have made themselves yeah, more I, voluptuous I, you know, stuff in there. <laughs> yeah, I've seen guys look better than her. <laughs> Just saying. So, <laughs> <laughs> hey, you gotta watch things to get you know get an education. In this country. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> yeah, this is another fucked up cast of uh, Americans as Asians. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. You know, Aunt Henry Silva. Although, I have to say. Henry Silver did pull this off in The Return of Mr. Moto, and um, we never did do a Henry Silver show, did we? No, but we brought him up several times. I actually, when you said about him as like a native or an Asian or something, I was thinking about that horrible one we did with the Sinatra show. Remember, we were Sammy Davis Jr. and Dean Martin go to the cave, and like the tribal people were acting up. They're supposed to be Indians, uh, I guess. And he was one of them. He was on the head ones. I'm like, wow, this is just... <laughs> although, although, although Henry, as... as Henry was great in that karate scene with Sinatra and Venture and Kennedy. Oh, yeah. Great as the villain. I'm not taking anything away from his later career when he's doing Eurocrime, stuff like that, no. Oh, no, no. <laughs> but these are only ones where they try to cast him as, like, a foreigner. I'm like, really? <laughs> well, a foreign Asian. As an Asian. Uh-huh. But I have to say, though, if you've ever seen The Return of Mr. Moto, which exists, folks, it's a British film, believe it or not. <laughs> um, yeah, wow. Um, you know, one of those like sets, I don't know if it's one of the Mr. Moto sets or what, they had an extra on there that was a TV episode or a TV movie from the 70s mm-hmm. that I think was something like The Return of Mr. Moto, but I don't know if it's the one you're talking about. No, it was an early 60s film. Okay. It was early, right before his uh, thing. What's next? All right, so next up, On the Beach, 1959. Crazy movie. Heavy-handed post-apocalyptic film in disguise from Stanley Kramer, the man behind the Tony Curtis, Sidney Poitier, The Defiant Ones from our Tony Curtis show. Despite how most of it looks, the sunny, crowded, and deceptively light-hearted first hour paints it as being a boring early 60s drama. This is actually a surprisingly dark film in the vein of The Day After, where a colony of survivors of nuclear holocaust reside in the till-now unaffected and radiation-free Australia. The film circles around a crew of a naval submarine who leave behind their lady friends to investigate a nonsensical Morse code being telegraphed from the California coastline. Assuming there are fellow survivors there, the Navy sends the always stiff-as-a-board Gregory Peck of the Omen, depressive Fred Astaire of all those classic Ginger Rogers pairings and the Bing Crosby Yuletide classic Holiday Inn, and nervous Tony Perkins North only to find both San Francisco and San Diego barren, with the message being sent by chance, a random bottle hanging on a window shade for some stupid reason, sending off the telegraph with every breeze. They return down under, only to find a highly radioactive cloud is now heading their way, and rather than stay with their lady friends, a rather cute, ponytailed, Archie Comics-looking Donna Anderson of Werewolves on Wheels was married to Perkins in this, and Peck's main squeeze Ava Gardner of Tam Lynn, our Satan in the 70s shows The Sentinel, and our William Shatner shows The Kidnapping of the President, they all head back to the radioactive wasteland of America to die in their hometowns. Yay? 
It's a bizarre film, nothing like the fun, crazed post-apocalyptic films of the 70s and 80s, a few of which, like A Boy and His Dog and Damnation Nation Alley, we discussed in our Science Fiction with a Message show, or the Planet of the Apes films, which we talked in our Go Ape show. It's really just a soapy, maudlin melodrama about people finding different ways to commit suicide and or spend their last hours as meaningfully as they can, with all this nuclear holocaust business limited to occasional spoken dialogue and some rare stills of empty streets that take up less than two minutes of a two-hour and 20 25-minute running time. It's pretty bad, except for some early business between Perkins and the slow-eyed yet perky Anderson that felt more like a Frankie and Annette-style beach party movie than the depressing, boring stinker it actually turns out to be. What's your take on this one? Oh, you almost thought this was a very powerful film. (laughs) 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 I'm kidding. I love you. No, I just No, I, I always thought it was a very powerful film, but no, I do agree with you. It's... It's too slowly paced. But how do you pace these things? You know, things like you you mentioned the day after and all these other Holocaust, uh, nuclear Holocaust films. You know, you, you, you go, you buy the ticket, you put it on TV, you know it's fucking going to depress you. This is pretty good, though. I I don't see it as a rewatch film. I, I would say to people who've never seen it or obviously maybe younger, you should watch this film because... It's it's very interesting. Gregory Peck is not as stiff as usual. How did this guy get a career? I don't know. <laughs> Fred Astaire, surprisingly... He's not like himself. He's very depressed in this one. Yeah, I know. He's surprisingly good. And so, so is Perkins. Actually, so is the whole cast. It's it's a Guy Dolman from... If um, Chris Files is really good. It's supporting cast. It gets a lot... Of, you know, like you got these, all these guys are good. Almost everybody has great lines, but yeah, this is like cut your wrist at the door, please, because you, you're gonna you, you're gonna you're, you're gonna you're gonna die anyway. You know? And see, I don't get the mentality of where they were going with this, because okay, yes, okay, it's a post-apocalyptic, the whole world, you know, we fuck each other, whatever the hell else. But you know, it's like when 9/11 happened. I was at work, and the only thing I could think about is, oh fuck. They're clipping down the highways and whatever the hell else. You know, tanks are out there, the whole deal. I was like, I'm going to be stuck with these assholes that I hate that I'm working with and not home with my wife where I want to be when everything goes down. That was the whole thing. It's like, and this film, instead of saying, you know what, fuck this, I'm going to stay with my girlfriend and, you know, if it happens, it happens. That's it. We deal with it together. They're like, yeah, let's go up to, you know, first they do the Navy trip up to America. Then they come back and like, eh, you know what, let's go back and die in our hometowns in America. What are you, fucking crazy? (laughs) But the, you know, they're also taking it from the the book that was well regarded by Neville Shute. It's a tough watch, but you know, the first time I saw this, which is many many years ago, the first time I saw this, I was like, wow, somebody was doing stuff like this back in. Oh yeah, it's actually surprising given the date. I'm like really yeah, back, back in back in fifty nine sixty. Wow, I was like, they, this this movie does not get enough love because what they were doing at such an early time. Another thing that, that, that kind of levels it up a little bit more for me, it was prescient because they were saying it was five years later, 64. So, you know, the author and the filmmakers are figuring out things are going to be worse. You know, uh, well, we're at the height of the Cold War. You know, Khrushchev yeah, and all that. So. And Stanley Kramer, who did Singing in the Rain, which you didn't mention, to film I love, did this. You know, the guy was really on his game most of the time until Saturn 5. I like Saturn 3. <laughs> Saturn 3, Saturn 3. Yeah, well, but... Uh, <laughs> Kirk Douglas. Did we do Kirk Douglas? We did, right? No, we did not. We talked about it, but we Pencil did not. Pencil in. Pencil in. <laughs> um, so anyway, no, uh, it's a movie... I have a tough time with these things. You know, 
even I'm going to be honest. You know, at my age, and I, I've seen everything. I've seen everything. <laughs> I have seen everything. At my age, I'm not old, but at my <laughs> age, I just want to clarify. And I've seen a lot of stuff on film mm -hmm. and video. <laughs> but <laughs> I've seen incalculable films, and sometimes I still think you've seen more. But of course, it's not stuff I would want to watch anyway. A lot of times. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, but trust me, you don't want to see so many things, man. Uh, I personally have a. I like the genre of post-apocalyptic pictures like this. You know, they don't have to be you know like the Italian action movies all the time. I do like and enjoy the genre. The Corman ones are terrible, though. <laughs> you know, I do like the genre. When you go into a picture like this and you know within a few minutes, yeah, this is what's gonna happen. There, there, what was it? There was the worst. The worst was Threads, the British one, which was so well done. Probably even more miserable to watch in the day. Oh my God, this is such a great film. But you know what? <laughs> I never want to see this again. <laughs> I never want to see Purging this again. From my memory. On the beach. I guess what I'm trying to say is, I think On the Beach is a good film. Yeah, there's no question. It's, it was well made. It's just and well just good acting in it. And it was good acting in it. It's just the subject matter. And I'm surprised, again, for the time period, that they actually pulled it off, that they actually gave the money to do this. And it's long, like you said. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but, and as far as Anthony Perkins' role in this, interesting, you know, for sure. But it's, it's an ensemble cast, so he, he doesn't really get the chance to shine, put it that way, I felt. So, almost immediately after that is 1960's Psycho, where he got the International Board of Motion Picture Reviewers for Best Actor nomination, and he was also nominated for the Bambi Award for Best International Actor. I've never heard of either of these awards, but nonetheless, he was nominated to receive them. Believe it or not, I actually never thought this was one of Hitchcock's better films. While it bears some real innovations, both in story structure and on the visual technique end, it in no way compares for me to any of the tout spy and mystery thrillers that he did, like The 39 Steps, The Lady Vanishes, North by Northwest, Notorious, or one of my favorites, The Highly Suggestive to Catch a Thief. Even The Birds is more existentially terrifying and absurdly random. Psycho comes off rather like a particularly well-crafted William Castle thriller, or maybe one of those early Hammer efforts, The Paranoic, which we discussed in our Alva Reed show. I think at this point, everybody knows the two big twist shockers in this, with the ostensible protagonist getting killed off about 45 minutes into the picture, and the big secret of Norman and his domineering mother, but of more interest is how these and oft-unnoted bits, like the lengthy attention to the killer obsessively cleaning up after himself, or the weird foreshadowing of Norman's office filled with homemade taxidermy, become unshakable tropes of the 80s slasher film craze thereafter. Influential in any number of ways and filled with a striking score from Bernard Herrmann and standout angular titles by Saul Bass, there's simply no way you cannot respect Hitchcock's direction and Perkins' performance here. Even the minor characters do a more than credible job for what was likely seen as a minor picture at the time. But do I put it among his best films? No. It's influential without a question. Taught, unexpected if you haven't seen or heard of it before? Definitely. Well-crafted? Indubitably. But as good as it is for what became, quote, the type that followed in his wake, it's second-tier Hitchcock in the end. It's a very, you know, we, we just talked about On the Beach being beyond its time. I think mm. Psycho's way beyond its time. Yeah, at least 20 years ahead of his time, for sure. 20 years, yeah, Paramount. I, <laughs> no way to say, no way to say, I don't know, there probably, probably is books where they spoke to people or sons of people or 
like what what the Paramount production people thought when they watched this in the screening room before you know getting ready for the trailers like holy fuck you know know, Hitchcock interesting filmmaker because he's all over the place yes the guys the guys all over the place and uh, some things people love I don't Mm. Um, I only recently got into uh, which don't laugh I think it's his best film what the one with Jimmy Stewart Rear Window Yes. You know, I never really liked that film that much either. I mean, I was like, okay, it's fine. But it's not one of my favorite Hitchcock films. But my wife, it's funny, we did a book and film club back in uh, my old job. And before I took it over, because I wound up taking that over, I wound up taking over the, the book club. There's like different clubs that we wound up taking over me. And always another partner that I just pick and whatever. And when this other guy was running it, that was one of his choices. I guess, you know, I figured, okay, big thing. Let's do a mystery film. How about Hitchcock's Rear Window? Sure. And I had the DVD of this, and my wife said she'd never seen it. So I'm like, yeah, you know, it's not one of my favorite Hitchcocks, but you, you might want to see this. You know, everybody loves it, and it's, it's decent for what it is. And she loved that damn thing. She thinks it's great. Whereas I'm just like, eh, you know, it's okay. It's got its moments. I don't know. It's like Jimmy Stewart, I liked him in the Philadelphia story. His trio of Hitchcock films were all decent, but, you know, I don't know. It just... It didn't work for you. It's yeah, okay. it didn't work. It's right. okay. It's okay. There was just... I mean, it's it's got a very. Uh, <laughs> I would love to see Argento tackle that fucking thing because. In a way, he did. <laughs> the way Do you he love Hitchcock? Did, <laughs> yeah, with the library. That one too. Uh, and a couple other things, but no, I mean, I really like to see Argento do Rear Window because he's, he's the guy to do it. Yeah, now he could definitely pull that one off and make it nasty. <laughs> well, with his. And you know who else did? The guy we just covered, Brian De Palma, with. Um, yes. Body Double? Was that the Body? one? With, yeah, that was the one with uh, Craig Wasson. Yeah. But, but you know, yeah. anyway, so yeah, we took a digression. Sorry, folks. But it's a shocking film. Yeah, you know, you're following this movie, and we have lots more to go. So, but, but just to say, <laughs> if anybody's not seen this, the the uh, lead actor who you think is the one who's the star of the film is murdered early into the movie, maybe shorter than 45 minutes. And uh, you can see where Jamie Lee got her wonderful stuff from. <laughs> I'm not going there. <laughs> wonderful stuff. And Vera, Vera Miles, another wonderful, wonderful stuff person. <laughs> John Gavin, who's who's always been given shit. And the guy, the guy is not a bad actor. No. Handsome, handsome actor. Uh, Martin Balsam. I mean, lots of good people in this movie. But yeah, what they did with Anthony Perkins is it's almost like. It's almost like they tap into something with the guy, because he's playing a very unusual. You know, maybe maybe Hitchcock knew, and and is he that good a director? I don't know. Is Joseph Stefano that good of a? You know, he did a lot of the um, Twilight Zone stuff. Was he that good of a writer? I don't know. Was was Tony Perkins that willing to unveil some things of his inner self? I don't know. There are many strange things about. So if you've not seen it, it's worth seeing. Yes. Later, is it the origin of all slasher films? Of course it is. There's nothing like this before this. Even the shower scene is shocking to this day. Very well cut. Almost like a, oops, did I see that? And I'm sure they had a tough time cutting us too. I like it. 
Yeah, no, it's, it's a good film. It's just I don't consider it. Like, everybody's like, oh, this is what's best. I'm like, no, not really. It's a good. No, one. it's not. It's not Hitchcock's best, but it's, it's definitely worth seeing if you're not seeing. Definitely, and you know, you're saying about the slasher film starting with this one. I still think that's basically true. But you could point to something that like, wasn't Violent Midnight in like '57. Mm-hmm. There was like one or two films that sort of leaned into this a little bit, but it wasn't like this. Psycho. Yeah, really... leaned into this a little bit, but this guy. This is the template. <laughs> so he started doing French films, and I did. Not see the first one, Amé Vauban, otherwise known as Goodbye Again. But in 1962, he does Phaedra. In the late 50s and early 60s, just before the Cahir du Cinema crowd took their fanboy film critique ethos to the next level to kick off the Nouvelle Vague, European art house film was filled with soapy, depressing melodramas where the hero or heroine was swept away and brought to ruin by their own desires. Even Doris Wishman brought a pair over here for the distribution, hilariously rewriting the translated scripts, which he apparently lost in transit, and redubbing them to a hilariously overwrought effect, Passion Fever and Hot Month of August. But they were ubiquitous at the time, these sort of things, particularly in Mediterranean countries like Greece. This stinker comes from blacklisted Hollywood noir director Jules Dassin, one of a handful of showcases for his wife, Melina McCurry, of Top Copy fame. This one is yet another young guy, old lady romance, quote-unquote, this time based loosely on the Greek myth of Phaedra, wife of Theseus, who wound up fucking her stepson, then accusing him of rape, which causes his death and her own suicide. Nah, that never happens, right? Perkins was obviously always an awkward choice for a romantic lead, at best coming off as intensely creepy and unsurprisingly without any passion or chemistry with his leading ladies. Yeah, I know, shocked. But with someone who comes off old enough to be his grandma? Mercury was one of the odder choices to push as a sex symbol, being in her mid-40s at the time of her game, and looking at least a decade plus older. I never got the appeal, but you will occasionally run across old-timers who gush a bit when her name comes up. Ralph Vallone, who co-starred with Sex Pot Sophia Loren in Two Women, and will later go on to The Human Factor with George Kennedy, and our Jackie Bissett shows The Greek Tycoon, which was discussed in much more detail in my interview with Nico Mastarakis, who directed it over at Third Eye Cinema, is the cuckolded husband who beats the living shit out of cocky smart-ass Perkins, and leads Tony to speed down a cliffside road like Grace Kelly and Monaco with the same result. Old Lady Mercury gives her maid a big lesbian-hinting kiss, which is a hell of a lot more than usual European greeting, and overdoses, roll credits. There were so many pointless dramas like this from that era, so at least you can say that Perkins brings his edgy weirdness, and the film is reasonably aesthetic with enough location footage to keep it watchable, despite the bullshit story and inappropriate casting. That's about all you can say for it. How about you? I had a thing for Melina Mercury. Really? <laughs> well, you do like MILFs. No, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, when she, what was that? Top copy. Yeah, yeah top copy. Oh, my God. <laughs> I was like, who is that? And then, <laughs> I watched it. I'm like, wow, why did they make a big deal of the old lady? <laughs> like, whatever. <laughs> no, but she's, she's, and her sultry voice. Oh, yeah, well, she was very oversmoked. She had that kind of uh, Lauren Hutton esque voice. Yeah, yeah I remember call. Brenda Vicaro was another one, you're right. I was like, Who's this? Yeah, I was like, who is this? Suzanne Plachette. My father liked those women with oversmoke voices like that. I remember that. I was like, hmm, okay. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> yeah, but it doesn't sound, you know, like, up to the seduction is good, but in bed it's like, honey, ah, can you pass me the, the Kleenex? <laughs> uh, but anyway. Oh, man. So, no, you don't clean up after. Leave out the shower. Um, 
No, I, I, I did see this, and I have to say I have to agree with you on everything, but I truly, really like Selena McCurry. Hey, that's fine. So, 1962, Five Miles to Midnight, also known as Le Coteau dans la Plaie. I am pretty much of a bust, I guess, and you're right. We are kind of an odd combination. It's our kind of love. Oh, my God. Sophia Loren is fucking stunning here. Unlike the low-class, earthy peasant hottie of her Marcello Mastriani pictures, like Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow, or Marriage Italian style, here she dresses and acts every inch the jet-setting sophisticate, visually being a cross between Dahlia Lavi and one of her few true rivals, Brigitte Bordeaux, who we devoted an entire show to. <laughs> to be frank, I have never understood how the two of you got married in the first place. After opening on Sophia doing a sort of sexy 60s dance at a local club in France, Perkins slaps her for no reason whatsoever, then gets picked up by cute hooker Pascal Roberts. Check out that scene with her stroking her stocking and suspended leg. Mm. Who he promptly changes his mind about fucking. It's fun to hear her insult the shit out of him in a mix of French and Franguish, if you understand any French. Our marriage isn't a marriage, and it never has been. Just a spoiled little boy with a nursemaid. Turns out they're a rather awkwardly married couple, particularly when she's chummy with perpetually on the make Jean-Pierre Aumont and fending off an over-aggressive, as usual, drunken and blowsy gig young of the strangely still unreleased but excellent occult TV movie Spectre, or Oliver Reed shows The Shuttered Room, and her Elvis movie shows Kid Galahad. If there's another man, well, bang bang. To bring in so much needed cash, he decides to fake his own death in a plane crash and have her collect on his life insurance. But dealing with the wild mood swings and jealous violence of Perkins, in addition to the stress of having to lie to everyone to pull it off, winds up being too much for Loren to deal with, leading to an unsurprising, if dark, ending. Old-timey director Anatole Litvak of our Humphrey Bogart show's Amazing Dr. Clitterhouse and the noir Sorry Wrong Number seems a strange choice for this French-Italian co-production, but it definitely works. A sort of super late-period noir with Eurocrime stylings, like a Melville cross with Max Picus, and we had discussed Picus and other French cult directors in greater detail in our Vive la France show way back when. This one works a whole hell of a lot better than Polanski's arguably similarly-minded Knife in the Water of a year prior, and I definitely enjoyed it, particularly with Loren and, however briefly, Roberts enlivening things visually, alongside the slick chiaroscuro cinematography by Henri Alacan of Coteau's stunning Beauty and the Beast. Nice stuff. Oh, it's a good one. It's a surprisingly good one, so you guys should check this out. It's a... Definitely. It's one of my favorites from this show. It's not what you would think. You know, not all these movies have to be action and horror and adventure. And, and this is a good a good uh, drama, not a drawing room drama, stuffy Brits. But uh, this is a very good drama. And, you know, yeah, you're right. She looks, Sophia Loren looks stunning. As, like we'll probably mention again next week. And it's interesting, you know, Gig Young, you know, guy's not a bad actor. And it wasn't until the... Uh, 1970s, 1980s, that we, it was well known he had issues. You know, I don't want to slam on anybody, really. And, but it looked like he always was drinking. That's the thing. <laughs> looked like he was drunk in this. And this is a French film from the early 60s. I don't know. <laughs> uh, no, but Five Miles to Midnight, good film. Yeah. So anyway. 1962, The Trial. Who the hell thought that Frank Skowski's hallucinatory nihilist existential diatribes would translate well to film? Apparently Orson Welles, who gave us more classics Touch of Evil, The Stranger, and Lady of Shanghai, but let his highbrow pretensions get the better of his artistic senses here. Perkins is Joseph K., the unfortunate everyman who learns the most paranoid yet sadly realistic of lessons that no one can be trusted, least of all anyone claiming quote-unquote authority over others. Sorry to disappoint you, but I'm afraid you won't find any subversive literature or pornography. Don't touch those record albums! 
One random morning, he awakens to find himself accused and subject to search by trench-coated, quote, authority figures. But what the accusation actually entails, or what, quote, authority they actually have over him, is completely undefined and unstated. He protests his general innocence of any presumed crimes or misdemeanors, but they not only fail to believe him, but use his words and actions, even the state of his domicile, a former dentist's office, as proof of his guilt. What's the charge? You aren't claiming innocence, are you? I'm also claiming invasion of privacy and rank abuse of civil rights. While they at first leave him be, he finds himself under suspicion in his home and workplace, and given the runaround through all sorts of red tape and being referred to one attorney, official, or person who supposedly could help him after another, all to no avail and less sense. In the end, he's informed by a local priest that he's been given the death sentence, and is promptly taken away by executioners, who effectively cast lots to see who gets to do the deed, before giving him a suicide option, which he rejects. In the end, he's blown up. Yay? Literarily and philosophically, this is an early 20th century indictment of communism and governments per se, and the illogic of not only a police state, but of authority figures and the randomness of not meaninglessness of life per se. It's Catch-22, which we previously discussed in our Richard Benjamin show, just given an even darker tone in Denouement, an existential statement even bleaker than Dostoevsky, Sartre, and Camus combined. But filmically, it's absurdist, but neither funny, like Buñuel, or likable, with a drab industrial feel like Antonioni without his camera's love of mise-en-scene and the aesthetics of landscape, and as much ridiculous talking head quote-unquote action as a Brian Michael Bendis comic. Even with folks like Wells, Perkins, our Bridget Bordeaux shows Viva Maria's Jean Moreau, and Elsa Martinelli of Roger Vadim's Blood and Roses in the OSS 177 films, the film is kind of hard to sift through, even by early 60s art house standards. As usual for his European work, Perkins is certainly well cast as a nervous, edgy oddball, much put upon by life and awkwardly trying to slot his way in somewhere to no avail. It's actually one of his best and most defining characteristics as an actor, and presumably as a man, but hardly a stretch, and the film simply doesn't work, not that it would under anyone else's directorial ages, so credit to Wells is due, but wow, why did he even do this? It just doesn't work. No, it doesn't work, and, and it's a... Sorry about the bell ringing, folks. It was some, I looked on my camera. It was some Asian milf who I don't know. <laughs> Normally, I run down... Send me money. I want to be girlfriend. You know, that shit they always give with the Russian no, brides. No, <laughs> I, I did not, but I don't know her. You know, and <laughs> why would you ring my bell? Because I don't know you. And my name is on my fucking bell. <laughs> if you're looking for Sanchez, don't ring Paul. <laughs> um, I'll burst there because this happens sometimes. <laughs> okay, maybe they can help his witnesses. Yeah, that's probably it. Um, back to this. Yeah, it doesn't work. I, I don't like these Kafka things. I don't like any of them. I, I actually read Kafka and I didn't like it then. So <laughs> Yeah, that's super dark. I was like, eh, whatever. I know what you're saying, but I'd rather read Orwell than that. No, yeah, Orwell's readable. Oh yeah, very much so. And filmable. <laughs> and filmable, yeah. I, I, Kafka is not. So, I mean, interesting cast, Jean Moreau, Romy Schneider, Elsa Martinelli, sounds like a Eurospy movie, but it's not Wells, of course, Akeem Tamaroff, but yeah, there's lots of people, Michelle Langdale, later to be uh, in Moonraker, I think, and Jesse Hahn, the um, Westinghouse. Oh, the TV show, the, the theater showcase? No, the, no, no, the, the, the washing machine guy. Oh. Hi. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. That guy. Yeah, yeah, everybody thought he was American. He's like this, you know, French-American guy. I got a long career doing commercials. Anyway, um, I don't know. Yo, do you do Kafka? That's one thing. You do Kafka with a weird character actor? That's another <laughs> thing. 
You do Kafka, directed by Orson Welles. It's heavy. Yeah, it's bizarre. I'm, okay, whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's bizarre, and it's... It reminded me of Godard's Alpha film. Like, oh my god, this is flat and weird, and I get what you're trying to say, but why bother? It's just unpleasant. It's unpleasant, yeah. It's unpleasant, and and the... I kind of got depressed watching it. Yeah, yeah. And the only time I ever got depressed watching it was two times. <laughs> Um, Peter Cushing, BBC 1984, and the Burton uh, 1984 with John Hurt. Years, with John Hurt, yeah. yes. I was like, why am I watching this? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you know, it's like it's like THX 1138. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> same kind of thing. It's like I get what you're saying, but oh, whatever. But this, Less bitter enough. <laughs> did you see Ravishing Idiot? Yo, of course I did. We talked about it in our Bordeaux show. So, uh, yes, in the Ravisante Idiot, the Ravishing Idiot, 1964. Edouard Molinaro, otherwise only known as Die Hard Art House Aficionados for A Pain in the Ass, that was actually the title, with Jacques Brel, directs this light and very French spy comedy, Brigitte Bardot, as the lovable klutz sidekick to Perkins' bumbling spy. In and of itself, this is hardly out of the ordinary. I mean, look at films like Beaumondo's That Man from Rio and Le Magnifique from our Eurospy and Jackie Bissett shows, the OSS 117 series, the Jean Marais Fantomas films, or the Tony Randall Our Man in Marrakesh, also from our Eurospy show. But what makes this one patently bizarre is that Perkins is a commie spy fending off allied counterintelligence agents. Say, huh? We discussed this one in our Bardot show, but suffice to say, it's a bit of a misfire. Bardot's in her prime here, all kittenish lovability and earthy naive charm, not to mention drop-dead gorgeous. But Perkins is always this strange, put-offish, quote, love interest for obvious reasons in retrospect. <laughs> and the comedy doesn't land half so well as similar-minded big day classics like Voulez-vous danser avec moi or No, Not Now. Hell, it's not even on the level of That Naughty Girl or Mademoiselle Striptease, which explains its also-ran status, even among Bardot aficionados like myself. It's much better than later entries like The Bear and the Doll, but comparatively weak, with humor downgraded to the level of near slapstick, like the scene where he chases a dog around a crowded restaurant on his hands and knees, or his fight with a possessed vacuum cleaner while undercover. It's okay, but yeah, even by Bardot film standards, it's like, nah. Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's, or it's a black and white, fine, yeah, black and white film from 64, French-Italian produced. Of course, the Americans released it here as Agent 38, 24, 36. You know. <laughs> but, you know, it's 64, so still the early days. Yes, she's spectacular to view. Um, mm -hmm. uh, Brigitte Bardot. And uh, they put her in tight sweaters. Of course they would. <laughs> and, um, but, you know, he, Tony Perkins is exhibiting some of these weird he plays a dual role, really. You know, he's a Soviet spy here, a deep mission, but you know, he's undercover as a klutzy kind of guy, perhaps love interest. And you know, he just doesn't do his love interest thing well. <laughs> he doesn't do the comedy thing well. He doesn't do the comedy thing well, but but later on he will get the gist of it, I think, um, and, and later pictures. But it, it's just a weird movie in a way. It's like you watch it and you're like. Why isn't this better? It should be better. Yeah, it should be, because it feels very much like, it. you know, the guy was clearly watching Bardot films. He kind of knew how they ran, at least from that period. Mm. And it doesn't work. And it's like, can you blame us on Perkins? Can you blame us on the weird script? I mean, what, what is it? It's like, it should work, but it doesn't. It doesn't. So anyway, 1966, Is Paris Burning? 
Holy crap, how much money was thrown into this American Finance French co-production? Despite being lensed by a lesser outhouse named René Clement, whose most notable credit was our Charles Bronson show's Rider on the Rain, just check out the credits on this three-hour black-and-white starfucker war film. Written by Dementia 13 and the world's absolute worst Dracula adaptation director Francis Ford Coppola and Caligula's Gore Vidal, and scored by Maurice Jarre, this one features a shit-ton of Euro and domestic names like our Jackie Bissett show's Man from Acapulco, goofy-looking Jean-Paul Belmondo, Melville Main Man and father of Nico's kid Ari, Alain Delon, of Unflik and Concord Airport 79, the latter of which was reviewed over at thirdicinemawordpress.com many years back, 30s continental sex symbol Charles Boyer, Jean-Pierre Cassel of Malpertuis, our Oliver Reed shows Three and Four Musketeers, Buñuel's Discreet Charm of the Bourgeois, and our Jackie Bissett shows Murder on the Orient Express and Who is Killing the Great Chefs of Europe. Goofy Lunk Yves Montan of the hilariously awful Marilyn Monroe stinker, Let's Make Love, and Melville's Le Cirque Rouge, Michel Piccoli of Bunuel's Diary of a Chambermaid, Marco Ferrari's Grand Buffet and Dillinger's Dead, Hitchcock's Topaz, our Mario Bava shows Danger Diabolic, and Johnny Rano lookalike Simone Signore of the Diabolique, Michel Lonsdale of our Sean Connery shows Grubby and Overrated Name of the Rose, Sasha Pitoeff of Last Year at Marienbad and Andrea Bianchi's Patrick Still Lives from our Italian sleeve show, the great radio and film star and director Orson Welles last discussed, uh, well, just recently, but also in our Richard Benjamin show's Catch-22, Kirk Douglas of our Robert Mitchum show's Out of the Past, our Tony Curtis show's Spartacus, and our Sinatra and Tony Curtis show's List of Adrian Messenger, our Dan Curtis show's Talk to Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, yes. our Brian De Palma show's The Fury, and Saturn 3, Robert Stack of our John Belushi show's 1941, our Edgar Wallace and Dr. Mabusi Creamy show's Kurt Froba, also of Goldfinger from our Trio of Bond show's, and our Bardot shows And God Created Woman, our Klaus Kinski shows Great Silence, and Robe Goulet regular Jean-Louis Trompignant. Oh, wait, it's still going. Our Wallace and Creamy shows Dr. Mabuza himself, Wolfgang Price, Very also nice. of Mill of the Stone Women, Cave of the Living Dead, and our Sinatra shows Von Ryan's Express, and a few recognizable names of no notable credits like Glenn Ford, Leslie Karen, and Daniel Gallant. This one starts off interesting as Froba is brought to see one of the most accurate-looking and acting screenwriters for Hitler ever captured on film. A Billy Frick, whose literal handful of credits featuring redoing this role four times over his six screen appearances, so you know he looked like fucking Hitler. Uh, <laughs> <just> after... <laughs> oh, look, it's Billy Frick. I guess he's going to be Hitler. Okay. Uh, just after the botched bombing attempt by his own generals, where only his thick oak death saved the bastard and increased his spiraling Putin esque paranoia. True to reality, he's spending all his time playing with eventual suicide method guinea pig and favorite dog Blondie. Uh, Hitler would actually spend the final weeks of the war putting out dog training manuals as Berlin fell, not to mention poisoning it and trying to do all kinds of things to figure out which way is the best to kill himself, and flips out, demanding Froba pull a salt the scorched earth thing on Paris if he can't put down a one-two punch of an impending allied and French resistance liberation thereof. That's it. Though you can imagine all the back-and-forth tale of two cities, major players' stories mixed with little guy local drama, and all the interplay of multiple characters' storylines that ensues. Sadly, it never really manages to retain the required degree of viewer interest to hold up its toppling Jenga tower structure, and you're likely to drift off to other activities pretty quickly. That first ten minutes promised a much, much better war film than the remainder of this bloated snooze fest could ever deliver. Did you like this one at all? Well, you know, I think everybody should see it. At least once. It, it's very long. That's what she said. It's very long, <laughs> and, and it's <laughs> and we don't often get the French side of this stuff. So, being as a, 
This has been done before. The Longest Day, the Bridget Remigan. What's the one where Redford and everybody, every living actor in, in the world? Um, <laughs> that was done. I was thinking The Longest Day, but that wasn't that. No, no, it was done later in the 80s. Uh, it had everybody in it. Everybody was alive. Taps? <laughs> no, no. It doesn't matter. Yeah, it's interesting to get the Gaelic side of things. And, well, not the Gaelic side. That would be the Irish, the Gaelic. But... <laughs> well, well, anyway, it's, it's, so, I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> it, and so it's interesting to see. He has a huge cast. But, you know, it's poor Billy Frick. <laughs> now, now he's, I assume him to be a Brit. Is he German? I have no but, uh, Frick could be German, yes. To be, but... to be cast so well as Adolf Hitler, he was cast <laughs> six times as Adolf Hitler in a bunch of pictures. This is for <laughs> really fans of those kind of star fucker, big major cast movies featuring everybody. Yeah, it's a, it's a World War II blowout. I think it's, it, it was done much better. Yeah. So anyway, 1967, The Champagne Murders, otherwise known as Le Scandal. First of two films the famed Nouvelle Vague director Claude Chabrol did with Tony, the other being Ten Days Wonder. This one features Chabrol regular Stefano Drum, also of Bunuel's Discreet Charm of the Bourgeois, the Harry Allen Towers and Then There Were None from our Oliver Reed show, Jess Franco's Faceless from our trio of Franco shows, and the ridiculous spy spoof Marie Chantal vs. Dr. Ka, a.k.a. The Blue Panther, Yvonne Fourneau of The Hammer Mummy, Death Ray of Dr. Mabuza, and Repulsion from our Hammer films, German Creamy and Roman Polanski shows, and Maurice Ronet of our Bordeaux shows The Women and If Don Juan Were a Woman, Sergio Salomon's Devil in the Brain, The Destructors, a.k.a. The Marseille Contract from a Michael Caine show, and the Leslie Ann Down Frank Langella Sphinx as the hapless lead. The plot is simple. It's one of those where the aesthetics and character peccadillos make it worth the watch. Ronet is a typically irresponsible and naive rich fuck who inherited his family's champagne business. Drinking and driving one night, he and Buddy Perkins decide to pick up a hooker. When they park the screw and Perkins wanders off to piss in the woods, they're waylaid by some thugs who knock the guys out and leave the hooker strangled. Unfortunately, this pattern of picking up cheap tarts who wind up dead continues a few times over. And that's not his only problem. Perkins' wife, Forneau, who's Rone lets run the family business for him, and her wingwoman, Audron, are trying to trick him into signing the company over to them. The murders go on, even hitting a prime suspect until the truth is revealed. It's fairly slight as mysteries go, and everybody's an asshole here, but Audron is quite fetching here. Forneau looks pretty good herself, particularly in glasses, rubbing hubby's back in the sack, and Perkins is at his cattiest. I still much prefer Chabrol and Perkins' next collaboration to this one, but while it's a bit sedate and slow going for an ostensible murder mystery, it's fun, it's aesthetic, and it's very watchable. I shut off everything. I'm sitting in the dark to kill the buzz. <laughs> Hopefully it went away. No, I don't hear nothing. Good, good. It's very dark here. No. <laughs> <laughs> Light a candle. I don't know. That's be funny. <laughs> um, I saw this year. I wasn't a huge fan of it. You know, Claude Chabrol pictures, there are people who just like uh, the person who was going to be and then backed out of our, yes. our thing. I'm sure she... Yeah, it may happen again. Who knows? Yeah, whatever. Okay. <laughs> uh, I'm sure she really likes Claude Chabot. It's really a parallel. It's up a lot of people's alley. I, his pictures, there's a few I enjoy. Yeah. Overall, I'm not a huge fan. That's about where I stand. I like some of his stuff a lot. Other ones like, yeah. But this has a interesting cast. You know, Maurice Romay, Yvonne Fernot, Stéphane Audrain, who I had a thing for. I like Stéphane. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, again, this is the picture with, it's, it, Chabrol was good at thrillers and mysteries, but when you throw Tony Perkins into the mix and try to use his off, naturally, 
off-kilter persona and make it about something else, like even a hint of, you know, romanticism gone awry, it's just, okay, it's weird. But then Pretty Poison really upped the ante with that. Yes. 1968, Pretty Poison. I think she's mixed up with someone. A man? Well, sure, she's not queer. <laughs> Literal dialogue. <laughs> TV director Noel Black, of no notable critics otherwise, delivers this bizarre film scripted by, of all people, Batman screenwriter Lorenzo Semple Jr. Supposedly a comedy, this weird reverse-gendered proto-Heathers features Perkins as a teenage arsonist who finds trouble landing a job after release from the nuthouse. You go into the movies, huh? You dumb little slut. He spies cute real-life nutjob Tuesday Weld of our Elvis shows Wild in the Country, the Mijino Bordeaux starring Sex Kittens Go to College, and Dobie Gillis fame, who 90s kids likely remember as Matthew Sweet's big fetish, chatting her up with an absurd line about being a spy, which the bored Midwestern cheerleader falls for, the little fantasy eventually escalating to Weld offing a night watchman and gunning down her white trash bitch of a mother, the alligator people's Beverly Garland, pinning it all on Perkins. Perkins, already assumed inclined to this sort of thing, takes the rap with her blessings, and she moves on to pull the same shtick with the next poor schmuck she meets. Sort of akin to 90s Lolita exploitation films like Jailbait and Poison Ivy, but with astronomically less sex, the very idea that this nasty little drama come semi-thriller is somehow supposed to be a, quote, comedy, much less from the pen of a notably broad and campy scriptwriter example, is mind-boggling. Well, this ever is more than watchable, and Perkins could sleepwalk through this sort of trouble outsider role, but it doesn't really work on any level, and you have to wonder what the hell they're thinking greenlighting this. I bet John Waters absolutely loved this and was trying to emulate it in his own divine starring epics, but I just don't get it. It doesn't work. Oh, this pretty much, this movie pretty much gave Tuesday Weld a... Uh, a career. <laughs> a career. Well, she, she was in the, you know, Dobie Gillis, Sex Kittens Go to College, Wild in the Country, Bus Stop, with Marilyn Monroe, you know, those kind of roles. And Soldier in the Rain, which we mentioned on Steve McQueen show. We did do a Steve McQueen show, didn't we? I think we did. Are you still there? Pit stop. Somebody took a pit stop. Well, you heard that? <laughs> no, I heard nothing. So she would continue to do strange fucking pictures for a while. Played as the lays, as weird as this, and uh, Who'll Stop the Rain with Nick Nolte. I mean, like, good roles, but not too many of them. I mean, she really, until Sergio Leone, of all people, cast her in a big part in Once Upon a Time in America, as I spoke. Anyway, so, yeah, it's a strange movie. It, you're right. Y'all you know, those guy who wrote Batman TV show, a TV director. But, you know, it goes to show that everybody... Something in them. <laughs> deep down has a secret freakiness. I, I'm sure they presented this to 20th Century Foxes. Hey, look, we have Tuesday Weld and Beverly Garland and, and Tony Perkins, who was in Psycho. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, okay, we'll green like this. <laughs> and then they see a picture about She's the sick fuck. Yep. And... and Manipulating people left and right to do her bidding. <laughs> yeah, and then the guy gets he gets framed and gets put into prison. And but he has a he has a moment of clarity when he he tries to convince his parole officer, you know, you better check on this girl. Yeah, and, and that's kind of the, the twist yeah. ending because you you see at the end the guy is actually tailing her and maybe she'll get caught down the road. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. So. I actually think it's a very interesting film. Oh yeah, and and it's um it's very ahead of its time for what it's doing but what is it doing because in 1968 we weren't seeing too many it would be like two or three years later we would see a lot of pictures like this mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, if they're trying to hit the Heather's market 20-something years early, they succeeded. But it's a strange film. And what really baffles me is it's like supposedly a comedy. How is this? There's nothing funny here. No, no, but no. Anyway. no. A black comedy. Black so anyway, uh, 1972. Yeah. Yes, 22. Yeah. He, apparently, Tony was nominated by the National Society of Film Critics Award for Best Supporting Actor on this one. A huge cast black comedy and surface satire of the military and war. This one goes a lot further than similarly minded fare like Doctor Strangelove or Mash from our Stanley Kubrick, Elliot Gould, and Donald Sutherland shows. In that, it's more of a bitterly nihilistic existential diatribe on the meaningless and futility of life per se. Based on what used to be a high school English-required reading assignment by Joseph Heller, it's folks like Alan Arkin's Yassarian, Dictatorial General Orson Welles, and Chipper Richard Benjamin who dominate the screen time here. Tony is limited to a fairly minor part as the hapless chaplain. It's not funny, but it's certainly absurdist. And if you've never read the book or seen this film, it's highly recommended that you do indulge at least once. It's a lot deeper than it may appear. But again, we had already addressed this one in our Richard Benjamin show, so I'm not going to go through it again beyond that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I wanted to point out that everybody's favorite John Voight is in this. <laughs> the man who's... The only good thing he ever did was Gunnar Sands and Joe <laughs> Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Right-wing fuck. Yeah, whatever happened to that guy, you know, he became such... Yeah, God but... knows. A lot of people go off the rails when they get old. I don't know what the deal is. Even people I know. Yeah, but it's interesting people. Bob Battleband, who really wouldn't really... Altered States. Altered States and... From our Ken Russell show. From our Ken Russell show and da, 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 um, uh, the fuck? Close Encounters. Yes, thank you. You're two, you're like years apart. I'm talking about years apart. <laughs> <laughs> the guy, the guy really, he does. I think he did a lot of off-Broadway, so he didn't do a lot of major acting roles. But when he did, there's interesting stuff. Martin Balsam, you know, from uh, forget about it. too many dimension movies. Norman Fell. Yes, we mentioned him a lot, which is strange. He does pop up in a lot of things like Charlie Varick and things like that. Yeah, he does. He does. He, he had, a, he had a, he had a particular bullet. That was another one he was in. He had a particular delivery to his lines, almost like he was, when he was young, he was like, I don't want to hear about it. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, like a crusty old man. Like, ah, crusty old man, even when he was young. Yeah. <laughs> Art Garfunkel again. Jack Guilford, who I uh, met one time in person. Uh, Charles Grodin, Buck Henry. These are all the old school New York theater guys. Austin Pendleton. Yo, Martin Sheen. It's like this thing is full of theater people, which is probably why it's directed by Mike Nichols, who's forever been been involved in, in theater in New York City. But it's it's an absurdist thing, <laughs> Joseph Heller. It's it's almost one of those unadaptable books. Yeah. And and it's it was worked on by Buck Henry, National Lampoon, Man Who Fell to Earth, a bunch of other shit, and early Saturday Night Live. So it's just like okay. Um, <laughs> it's it's watchable to watch once, I right. would have to say, but it, it, it doesn't have the gravitas of, of a lot of similar pictures like Mesh, which we covered uh, in the past. So 1970, he does another supposedly intended heavy one, WUSA, WUSA, and here he was nominated again by the Society of Film Critics for Best Supporting Actor. Directed by Stuart Rosenberg of The Laughing Policeman and our Charles Bronson show's Love and Bullets, this is a sleepy vehicle for Torn Curtain and Fort Apache of the Bronx star Paul Newman and his somewhat hard-bitten wife Joanne Woodward of no notable credits. 
Newman is a drunk who drifts into a Midwestern town, landing a job at one of the first AM fascist-leaning talk radio stations in decades before his time, cynically spewing forth all the usual right-wing propaganda and incitement to hate against anyone who doesn't think, look like, or disagrees with their bullshit. In other words, he's the original Bob Grant, Rush Limbaugh, Joe Rogan, or Alex Jones, whether he believes the shit he's selling or not. We ever catch you hustling around here, you're going to get another one, shakes fist menacingly. Woodward is a hooker who also drifts into town and winds up falling for Newman, and Tony Perkins is the guilty white liberal activist who takes his concern for the black man to ridiculous extremes. Pat Hingle of the Gauntlet from our Clint Eastwood show is the crazy right-wing station owner who pushes all his MAGA crap to incite listeners to storm the U.S. Capitol, um, excuse me, attend a huge Trump rally, oh, no, decades before the Orange Goblin was a thing. Also in the cast are Moses Gunn, Bumpy from Shaft, also of Mom's Mabley's Amazing Grace, and Damiano Damiano's hilariously sleazy Amityville 2, Robert Quarry of the Count Yorga trilogy, Sugar Hill, Madhouse, and Roller Coaster from our Blaxploitation, Amicus, and George Siegel shows, Wayne Rogers of our Tony Curtis show's Chamber of Horrors, and Ted V. McKell's Dr. Sex, and Mel Brooks' regular Cloris Leachman of our Richard Benjamin and Ryan McDowell show's Scavenger Hunt. But it's so slow going and so understated, it loses nearly all of its intended impact. Instead of a prescient warning about dedicated propaganda networks like AM Talk Radio and Fox News, not to mention agent provocateurs both within and owning social media, <laughs> hello Elon, it turns into a meandering aimless snooze fest of bad, whisper and mumble method acting, without even the usually electrically crazed Perkins making much of a stir. It's a tremendous missed opportunity that ultimately a total failure, justly forgotten despite its warning to contemporary America. I really was just nonplussed by this one. I, I want to backtrack. <laughs> you said Joanne Woodward of no notable credits. What do you? I think can be Ward for Best Actress, Three Faces of Eve. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> no, it's a good movie, man. It's it's a psycho picture. You would like that. Rachel, Rachel, another. She she really excelled when she wasn't on stage playing psychopaths. <laughs> Uh, they might, they might by, be giants. The, um, the uh, George C. Scott picture where he played a, a schizophrenic who thought he was uh, Holmes, she plays Watson. And, uh, <laughs> she did. She's in the drowning pool with Paul Newman. Uh, she's done a lot of good things. I just wanted to, you know, that kind of rubbed me. Because, <laughs> no, she, she's a real, she was a really good actress, and she was married to Paul Newman for, like, decades. Yes. The WUSA. Now, here's, a, again, yeah, you're right. It doesn't hit as hard as it should, but it's probably maybe in 1970, you know, Paul Newman, who usually spearheaded these kind of pictures that mm-hmm. he was in because he had that much clout. Mm-hmm. Paul Newman pretty much always had heavy clout as an actor. And, and and he probably knew what was going on because the W means white, white USA. That's oh, the radio station. I thought it was just the radio station like it was like WNBC. Yeah, <laughs> the W means white, uh-huh. white USA, yeah, conservative. Talk. Yes, it's prescient in a way, but it doesn't hit as hard being that what came in a decade since what we're experiencing now. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, the, the cast is Kiss is kind of interesting. You know, you got Perkins, uh, yeah, not used to the extent we are normally used to seeing him in. But Lawrence Harvey, Pat Hingle, yeah, we could see it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Lars Leachman, uh, Robert Quarry, you know, lots of people. Clifton James, who actually, you know, from uh, Live and Let Die and the uh, Man with the Golden Gun, the sheriff and that, plays a sailor in a bar. And I'm not going to mention anymore about 
It's funny, a lot of people thought that Anthony Perkins' role was important enough to bring him mention to mm-hmm. from the National Society of Film Critics, but at the same time, it was kind of weak, Yeah, I thought. He does some weird shit for American television next, though. So, 1970, with weird TV movies you mentioned, How Awful About Alan? A public domain standby. I actually had to stream this one off YouTube and found it wholly detestable and a true drudgery to get through. I actually wound up skimming through it after going so long with nothing happening. Tony is psychosomatically blind, or at least his vision is severely impaired and blurry, since a traumatic incident in which his teenage house burned down. The rest of the film is basically him sitting around the kitchen, chatting with what appears to be his mother, an older, dowdy woman who by the end turns out to be some psycho killer with a big kitchen knife. Don't ask me, it's horrific. Presumably it appeals to the same crowd who love that horrid, no-budget drag snooze fest. Sometimes Aunt Martha does dreadful things, which I had the misfortune to review over at thirdeyesinema.wordpress.com a few years back. But I can't see any other value to this one. It's a TV movie, so it's bloodless and understated to boot. So there's really not a hook to sell it on. I always thought it was creepy. You know, ABC Movie of the Week, back in the early 70s, they did some strange shit. You know? Oh yeah, some of them were great. Yeah, some of them were great. They wanted to, they wanted to compete with the uh, suddenly exploding box office, martial arts films, and drug movies, and, and they didn't know how to deal with it. And they got kind of hard edged. Some of them. We had William Shatner trying to like shock his daughter out of uh, drugs, and there was the pregnancy films. There was a whole bunch of weird stuff. Some of it very quite good and very well regarded. This is one of the weird ones. I. I always thought this was strange, though. It's like, yeah, exactly. You mentioned already uh, Tony Perkins plays a guy with blindness, maybe psychosomatic, which means he probably has some other things going on from childhood. Julie Harris, another hardcore stage actress, this thing is filled with people from the stage. So I'm like, okay. Curtis Harrington, who directed this, did a lot of interesting movies over the time. Yeah, Night Tide, for one, with uh, Marjorie Cameron. That was John Whiteside Parsons' Scarlet Woman for the Babylon yeah, working. <laughs> he also did Games and What's the Matter with Helen, who's slaying Empty Room, Ruby. I mean, he did some interesting things on TV. He did. What was the other thing that Cameron was in? Oh, Kenneth Anger, Invocation of My Dear and Brother or something. Yeah, The Cat Creature, Dead Don't Die. You know, he wasn't an auteur, but he was, it was somebody who did interesting stuff. Yeah, oddball interesting stuff, you know. So I, I, I don't dislike it as much as you do, but it, it, it somehow slammed the PD for some bizarre reason. And I don't know, it's an odd movie. But, but Tony Perkins started doing odd movies like the next one. Yeah, so Someone Behind the Door in 1971, otherwise known as Calcun Derrière à la Porte. Nicholas Gessner, who gave us the equally bizarre Jodie Foster vehicle, The Little Girl Down the Lane, a few years later, drops this quiet and highly atmospheric oddity that's neither fish nor fowl. Almost noir and approximating the quieter borders of Jalo and its tale of an amnesiac being manipulated into revenge murder, it's practically TV movie-esque in its measured pace and bloodlessness, but rather than the usual set-bound impoverishedness that it implies, it's built around its moody and isolated yet jet-setting UK settings. Filmed around a few decidedly ritzy hillside homes in Kent, the entire proceedings take place in a windy, overcast late fall milieu, with a minimalist cast. Almost exclusively, Tony Perkins is a surgeon whose neglect of his stunning wife, Bronson wife, and regular co-star Jill Ireland hit her most fetching, particularly in some oversized glasses and later a ready-for-bedding leather boots and furs ensemble, leads her to dump him for another man. 
when an amnesiac Charles Bronson, who we had devoted an entire show to, chances into his care, he sees an opportunity to get back at wifey in office competition while getting off scot-free by convincing Bronson he's Ireland's jilted hubby and he needs to off the competition. With a bizarre ending that sort of hints at reconciliation, but also points the finger of blame for the entire situation squarely on Perkins' failings, it's hard to really classify this as noir, giallo, or even a Columbo-style murder mystery where we know exactly who done it and how from the get-go. It's just weird and very, very late 60s. Think stuff like Just Before Dark or the slightly later Spiral Staircase remake, which we talked in our Jackie Bissett show. I liked it for the atmosphere in Ireland, who's a total knockout here, but it's hardly a high recommendation unless you're into the sleepier end of British cult cinema of the era. You know, think the sort of films that Scorpion used to put out, and like this, occasionally still do through Kino Lorber. I liked it, but it's it's an oddity, and it's definitely sleepy. It's an oddity, it's still going, but it's also one of those films that, you know, we, we covered Bronson in the entire show, but it's also one of the films that, that shows how good Bronson was pre-Death Wish. Yes. You know, when he worked in these uh, Italian and French films, he kind of he kind of gave a little extra oomph. Yeah, he wasn't typecast yet, so. He wasn't typecast, and yet he, you know, he, he was... Uh, I still think one of the best things he ever did was that picture of Wayne Golong. Oh, uh, Cold Sweat? Yes, yeah. Under many other different titles, too. They were stuck in the... In the bank vault together. In the bank it's vault oddly together. homoerotic. <laughs> and it is. It is. Yes, it is. You would not think of Bronson starring in a film like that, but I was like, that's interesting. <laughs> but no, this is... I, thought, I always thought this was quite good, but not getting to an edge... Where where you want to get? Yeah, yeah. You know, Perkins is playing usual creepy guy, <laughs> <laughs> manipulating a amnesiac, which is Bronson, who may or may not be. You know, again, that's the other thing about this film, which I found interesting to me. Yeah. Where are you going next? There's a lot of questions. So, 1971, Ten Days Wonder, otherwise known as Le Decade Prodigieuse. If I broke your head with this, it wouldn't grow back again. A particularly strung-out Tony Perkins stars alongside Louis Bunel and Marco Ferrari regular Michelle Bacoli, and the ineffable multi-talent and raconteur Orson Welles in this Ellery Queen adaptation from Nouvelle Vogue mystery specialist Claude Chevrolet. Middling Marlene Jobert of our Charles Bronson show's Rider on the Rain is the déclassé trophy wife slash gold digger married to the rich but notably portly and significantly older Wells who bangs the quirky of fashionably shag-sporting Perkins despite his being an adoptive stepson. Perkins is also subject to bouts of blackout amnesia. Wait a minute. Wait. You sound like Wells was banging Perkins. <laughs> did you? Did you uh, no, no. It's Jobert banging oh. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure. Gilbert is married yeah. to Wells, but <laughs> Ben Perkins. Oh boy. Uh, <laughs> I don't think Orson went that way, but who knows? Uh, anyway, Perkins is also subject to Beth's blackout amnesia, and murder seems to follow in the wake of these missing spells and lapses of memory. He took care of me, my clothes, my studies. He taught me how to live. He was my god. Entitled the cut for this use. Possibly a snarky nod to Wells' weight, <laughs> the English title follows that of the novel, which sounds more appropriate for a maudlin family drama weepy than the trippy murder mystery with sleazy undertones. Even beyond the aforementioned unequal marriage and implied incestuous affair, it becomes apparent that Wells was a groomer of the then underage Gilbert since she was a schoolgirl, maneuvering her into said marriage not long thereafter. 
It's dark and moody, with Piccoli in the role of a renamed Elric Queen, a family friend who falls into unraveling the mystery. With some odd modernist classical music scoring by Pierre Johnson, which actually accentuates the off-kilter, almost eerie vibe of the proceedings, and weird scenes listeners know exactly how often I mention the score in non-Italian cinema, so you know it's an important element here. So there's a strong undercurrent of horror film about it that brings to mind similar fare like the surprisingly excellent Tam Lin from our Roddy McDowell show, or The Gardener, a.k.a. Seeds of Evil with uh, Joe D'Alessandro. Perkins seems to have impeccable taste in his European film appearances, from his early roles with folks like Bardot, who we did a show on, through his 70s work with Alexa Chabrol. His American films can be hit and miss, but he found the appropriate level of decadence in Europe to express his inner self far more so, save for his very late career work with Ken Russell and under his own direction. All four are excellent here, Perkins and the always winning Piccoli in particular. A very strange movie. This this movie would be revived many times over the decades, and a variety of art house theater special things like we're going to do a Chabot show, we're going to do a uh, Orson Welles thing. So I saw this at one of those, and I was like, okay, this is strange. <laughs> it's not your typical murder mystery film Mm -hmm. and the funny thing is you know i saw the most recent knives out and and, and i was like it reminded me very much of this kind of uh (laughs) it's actually quite good both the knives out films you don't have to love daniel craig or not you know he's he's doing a gay fusso sort of (laughs) yes but i like how they get to be a little twisty and a little, you're not sure what's going on until you're midway through the film. So it's very interesting. So, uh, not a great film, but certainly not a complete waste of time. 1973, The Last of Sheila, oh. co-written. Oh, go ahead. You're going to skip the lightning time? Judge Rabin, yeah, go ahead. Do it. John Houston, which everybody knows John Houston, and John Milius, the great John Milius. Yes, come the Barbarian. Yes. Uh, they came up with this... <laughs> <laughs> this thing... Not a good idea. <laughs> it was an American Western film. Yeah, I was like, nah, I don't think I'm going to sit through that. <laughs> based on a real-life guy, Judge Roy Bean, who was an anarchistic fuck-up and drunkard. And it had an all-star cast, and nobody liked it. Nobody liked it. You know, you had uh, Newman, Jackie Bissett, Tab Hunter, John Houston, Stacey Keach, Roddy McDowell, Anthony Perkins, Anthony Zerby, Ava Gardner. Can you blew this cast? <laughs> yeah, it's an amazing cast. It wasn't a great film, and it was way long at uh, two hours, and I think it was even longer before they cut it. And they tried to sell it first as this kind of 1972. A lot of Westerns coming out around that time were kind of anarchistic, and maybe were edgy. It was it was at the end of the you know the Western thing. Yeah. And at the same time, when they tried to do something different with the genre, as John Huston, it would just become weird. It's like too little, too late, and too weird. Yeah. And realize too what I said before is like you're dealing with a movie that starred. Roddy McDowell, who we did a show on. Jackie Bissett, who we did a show on. And now we're doing a show on Tony Perkins. And I was like, nah. Every time, I'm like, nah, I'm not going to do this one. <laughs> so I passed on it three times. That tells you about yeah, it. No, it's okay. Uh, I like I like Paul Newman because sometimes he really surprises me. He uh, surprises me with his uh, performances. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, no, he's fine. I liked him a lot in uh, Fort Apache the Bronx, for one. He surprises, he surprises me with his gusto. Color um, Color Money? Color Money and the original. The one we did with Jackie Gleason. Oh, yeah, what the hell is that? Uh, the Hustler or something? Hustler. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's some really good stuff. The funny thing about Paul Newman was, the funny thing about Paul Newman was, this is coming from me personally, they always, he was very handsome, very handsome, blue eyes, very handsome guy. They, I never felt in all the, let's, uh, in quotations, romantic films he was been in, or the pictures where he's supposed to be a romantic lead, that he was desirable because <laughs> he, he just seemed like a guy. Yeah. There's a flat effect to that element of him. It's true. Maybe it's because he was married the whole time to Joanne Woodward and he was like faithful to her. I don't know. But he... oh, very. That's a very good point, though. That's a very good point. Yeah. But yeah, it almost is like casting a gay actor in those roles, and sometimes even worse, because like you don't really believe there's any connection there. There's no like, okay, well, he's not interested in her, whatever. But he's supposed to be for the film scripts. So I'm like, uh, yeah, fuck. exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I I did find. A while ago, what not related to the show, I was watching. I found myself watching quite a few Paul Newman films again. I said, you know, I really like this guy. Yeah, no, he's a good actor. And and uh, you know, not and apparently he was a good person too. So yeah, he <laughs> was a good person too. I'm still eating his spaghetti sauce. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we have some stuff for his. Yeah, and, and I'm like, uh, you know what? I'm sorry he got he got ill and passed on, but you know, he did some really good stuff, and. Uh, Possibly one of the best of the Irwin Allen films. That's a real good. Oh, you mean that uh, was it, Towering Inferno? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's a yeah, a movie that shouldn't work but worked. We should, <laughs> we should do a show on movies that shouldn't have worked but worked. <laughs> I thought you were gonna say Irwin Allen films. That'd be funny, but I was like, what are you gonna say? I mean, they're all you know the funny little cast they put in. But <laughs> how many times can you count Shelley Winters? Yeah, but but yeah, no, no, but something different like. Movies that shouldn't have worked, but worked. Yeah, no. That's actually a good idea. I just know which one you're just you're thinking of. But yeah, I was just like, you know, if you could do Earl and Allen show, like, gives it a drinking game. Like, how many times Shelley Winter shows up in the cast, or how many times she gets all brass, you know? <laughs> <laughs> or or falls down and can't you know, get up, or <laughs> not, not, not all. Yeah, most of the Irwin Allen things are okay, and some of them are terrific, and some of them are great fun. Beside Adventures, the yeah, best. Absolutely, that's true. <laughs> Yeah, Poseidon Adventure is the best. And um, was he Food of the Gods? Uh, that was so, probably the worst one I saw. And you know, it was bad though. Jackie Bissett was in it. the last one we reviewed it. Uh, was it the, when time ran out? When time ran out. Yeah, uh, I don't know what happened there. Yeah, that was the last film. That's right. Why they didn't give him the money anymore? And and people didn't like the Swarm with Paul Newman, uh, Michael Caine. I like it, but it was a bad film. I mean, you know, these all disaster films. Like so cheesy. It. Yeah. It's got Michael Caine, so how can you? <laughs> so anyway, The Last of Shield in 1973. Oh, which yeah. He, he co-wrote with Stephen Sondheim, as you mentioned earlier. And it won the Edgar Allan Poe Award Best Motion Picture Screenplay. <laughs> so anyway, like the earlier Catch-22, we talked this one more extensively in our Richard Benjamin show. Herbert Ross of the Owl and the Pussycat, Soap Dish, and Boys on the Side from our George Siegel and Whoopi Goldberg shows, directs this picture co-written by the odd pairing of Tony Perkins and Broadway Maven, and at the time, boyfriend, Stephen Sondheim. So the big open secret here is that Tony and Sondheim were an item back in 1972, and that's why they co-wrote the script for this. Sondheim was apparently the one who was big on games and puzzles, while Perkins was where all the Hollywood insider business hailed from. 
This is indirectly confirmed on the commentary by Richard Benjamin, who lets slip that, quote, when you went over to their place, Stephen and Tony had all sorts of elaborate games for guests to play. Amusingly, more anecdotes slip out when either Diane Cannon or Raquel Welch, likely the latter, mentions that James Mason wound up with a manservant from Marrakesh that his then-wife brought back for him. And then she recognizes how that sounds and demurs that there was nothing sexual about it, but then drops the line that he would rub his feet and scrub his back when he took a bowl bath before realizing how uh, interesting the statement that is and backing off again. Ah, Hollywood in the 70s. Yeah, right. Hollywood in the 70s. Anyway, the whole plot is one big murder mystery, quote, game involving folks like the aforementioned Benjamin, Mason, Cannon, and Welch, plus James Coburn and Lovejoy's Ian McShane. And we covered all those folks on various shows on co-stars and directors like Klaus King. Frank Sinatra, Oliver Reed, Burt Reynolds, Stanley Kubrick, Michael Crichton, Michael Caine, Elliot Gould, Burt Reynolds, and Sean Connery. Yes, there's a lot of people we covered. And it's one of the most homoerotically charged films of its era. It's very gossipy, it's very insider, and it's almost as catty as an Andy Milligan picture. It's fun for all of that, though as a murder mystery or a pseudo-jalo, which it comes off as akin to due to all the high living of the nouveau riche and the perversity that comes out along the way, it falls pretty flat in that respect. It's more about, quote, secrets coming out that could damage people's reputations and careers than actual past murders or any killings of those involved, for that matter. But I did really enjoy it for what it is. Oh, I really like this movie. Yeah, it's loads of fun, especially if you like that kind of caddy. I, I, I could see them remaking this. They'd probably be the next Knives Out, like uh, <laughs> Daniel Craig. Cause I don't know if anybody's seen that Daniel Craig commercial for that booze where he's totally gayed out. I'm not sure if I've seen that one. Yeah, I, I shared it on, on YouTube. I was like, gay? You're not, bond, <laughs> you're not Bond anymore. It's like, you could swing it, boy. Um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, I kid you not. It's like some what, what, what Taiki Wakiti, whatever the fuck his name is, and the, the Australian director did a couple of Thor movies and other things, and he decided, oh, Daniel's not doing anything. Let's sell some vodka, and he's got like Daniel Craig, like all tight leather, and like <laughs> doing like his uh, one of the Village Boys. I'm like, hey, I like. I was going to ask you if it was out there as uh, Matt Smith in Morbius. <laughs> oh, it's more out there. It's wow. More out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'll find it for you, yeah, and yeah. I, I will I will send it to you because I was going to see this. <laughs> and, then, and then the commercial ends, and there's like 10 minutes of him sitting around, and he's still drinking from the vodka, like, hey, it's not a good time. <laughs> like... All right, this is weird. You, know, you guys finished the, finished the advertisement, and he's like still drinking, and like, oh, that was great, wasn't it? Like, yeah, yeah. The guy dances like fuck. Holy shit! There's a new career for him. There you, know, you go. Like, you, know, you should do some Jerry Cotton movies or something. Wait, she did. No, not Daniel. Oh, Craig. Daniel Craig. Okay, I think Minnows. Yes, we did a Ralph Nader show. Oh, sorry, Ralph Nader. What am I George. George Nader. Ralph Nader's the Green Party guy. <laughs> but yes, George oh, Nader, yeah, the first gay action hero. So, Herbert Ross, guy's been working on Broadway, still working, I think, uh, on Broadway, directed this. Steven Stahl, you mentioned everything before. But you know what? I like this movie because it's very twisty. Yes. If you, folks, if you've not seen it, it's, it's worth investing time in. It's a really good, clever, and there's a reason why I mentioned Knives Out. It's a really clever murder mystery. <laughs> Pretty much the same gig as Knives Out. It's like, you know, these people are in line to get together. It's the Agatha Christie thing. 
Yeah, people are invited to get together. They don't like each other or they hate each other or they've been with each other, but hey, you know, whatever. <laughs> and it, it's a lot of fun. And what I liked about it is the people that you thought were the nice people, <laughs> really the ones that went up being the, the dicks. So he wrote this with Stephen Sondheim. Telling Keel was uh, the uh, end title song was by uh, Bette Midler, who used to perform in the gay bathhouses. Yes. <laughs> you notice, right? You so mentioned back, it last time, yeah. Yeah, back in these days. So, you know, it's uh, interesting. I, I, I like the last of Shiller, actually. I, so, uh, so, I believe the same year, Murder on the Orient Express. Mm. No matter how many times I sit through this one, and despite some nice train settings, decent costumery and aesthetic considerations, it never fails to fall flat. Sidney Lumen, who gave us the excellent The Offense and the Middling Anderson tapes from our Sean Connery show, and the rather good Serpico and Dog Day Afternoon from our Al Pacino show, plus the top-notch and surprisingly blatant homoerotic mystery Death Trap from our Michael Caine show, drops a big-budget starfucker turd on everyone's head. We covered this one a few times for our Sean Connery and Jackie Bissett shows, and that only marks three recent viewings of this stinker. I'd been exposed to it several times since this 1974 release, and it just never works. The problems are twofold. First, there are simply too many characters getting too little of the screen time. Despite having some good actors and several lesser but arguably more famous ones in the cast, nobody really gets more than a handful of lines and aggregate of under six minutes apiece on screen. The bulk of the running time seems dedicated to the real problem with this film. Cross the Albert Finney of our Jackie Bissett shows Two for the Road, Wolfen, where I loved him in, and our Michael Crichton shows Looker, another good one, as perhaps the world's worst Hercule Poirot ever committed to celluloid. Unlike Sherlock Holmes or even Charlie Chan, each of whom had multiple actors delivering perfectly serviceable, if not rather good takes on the character, Poirot has always been decidedly ill-served on screen, with blustery Peter Ustinov being sadly the best of them, until television's David Chuchet finally did him justice as a quirky, if likable, detective mastermind. Finney, with his awful accent and broad comic mugging for the camera and far, far too many downtime scenes here, is not only a bad Poirot, he's actually distracting from everyone else on screen. It's like they let Luke Costello run amok on the set of some Rada production like I, Claudius. You have folks like John Hurd, John Reese davies Brian Blessed, and Patrick Stewart at their most Shakespearean theatrical, and here comes Lou. Hey, I've been, I've been a bad boy. He's that awful. In other hands, with more room for the good actors to strut their stuff, this could have been a great film. As it is, it's boring, it's flat, and it's hard as hell to sit through. I actually like the Kenneth Branagh version of this better. And uh, Yeah, it, it's slow. It's very slow moving, this one. But all these Agatha Christie things are long, and they're weak, and... Well, Look, and then there were none from the 30s. It's great. Very oh, atmospheric. Yeah. Fantastic. Ten. And then there's one that Fabian did, which is funny and cheesy and campy. All those Ten Little Indians are good. The one from 65 are fi- is fine. The one from 74. The one that Lou Grade did. Yeah, Oliver Reed. Yeah, yeah. With, that was good. That was damn good, which I was asking for. But <laughs> this is just like, I don't know. It just doesn't work. It's funny. Like, and then there were none is one... That can be readapted, except for the Harry Allen Towers version, Dunford Cannon, and <laughs> in the jungle. But most of them, most of them really work. They're hit and miss these things. You know, they're overlong. 
they're star fucking cast, but it's just like no, you know, just not. Next. <laughs> I skipped over a couple of them here, but you may want to talk about either Mahogany or Les Miserables. But if not, I'll go right to Winter Kills. Uh, Mahogany was... (laughs) (laughs) Mahogany was this Barry Gordy from Motown. With Diana Ross. Very successful, yeah. It was like a a movie about Supremes-type band featuring and starring Diana Ross and a bunch of other people. Anthony Perkins played like... (sighs) impresario slash lover but you knew it wasn't believable <laughs> and yeah there was that another picture he appeared in was remember my name by alan rudolph interesting director and uh but he played another dick he was living a, a living a life with his second wife after he abandoned his first wife and then his first wife comes back from prison and uh, he has to deal with stuff. And, you know, he had interesting character actors in this. Alan Rudolph movies with uh, Geraldine Chaplin, Moses Gunn, uh, Jeff Goldblum, Alfred Woodward from early in the days. And it's just like it's a drama kind of picture. Um, not a great film for sure, but Winter Kills really kind of up the end. Yeah, 1979 Winter Kills. Okay, this one's a huge mess. Apparently, the guys behind it were two rich dope dealers. Seriously. The cast actually got paid at random intervals, just like a drug deal. They'd be called to some hotel room and get paid in cash. And things were so erratic that supposedly folks wound up working for free, waiting for another payout, until the union got word and shut it down. Even funnier, the one guy got off by the mob of these two guys, and the other wound up with a 40-year jail sentence as a smuggler. He was even originally lensed by our pal Vilmos Zygmunt, but after it got shut down and not completed until two years later when no credits director William Reichert was flushed with cash, they had to find somebody else to lens the rest. Can you say fucking disaster? The only reason whatsoever to see this is Belinda Bauer, whose only notable credits are the Rosary Murders from our Donald Sutherland show and the Brian Yuzna Necronomicon, who sports a sexy French accent, I'm always a sucker for that, has a ridiculous screaming fake orgasm, and gives us a stunning rear view and full frontal. That's it. There's a huge Starfucker cast, led by an absurdly effeminate Jeff Bridges of Stay Hungry and the Thunderbolt and Lightfoot from our Arnold Schwarzenegger and Clint Eastwood shows, whose pasty white ass also scars viewer retinas as the brother who's investigating the whole thing. You got no business sense, no political sense. What the hell do you want anyway? Where are your values? Do you get laid? Bridges is a rather Rufus Wainwright-like fellow, a ridiculously fey piano-playing son to crusty old John Houston of Man Who Would Be King, Casino Royale, List of Adrian Messenger, and several Bogart films, Beat the Devil, Key Largo, Treasure of the Sierra Madre, and The Maltese Falcon from our Sean Connery, James Bond, Jackie Bissett, Tony Curtis, Frank Sinatra, and Humphrey Bogart shows. He's different, that's all. Like me, he's sensitive. Eli Wallach of The Magnificent Seven, Good, Bad, and the Ugly, The Sentinel, and The Deep from our Charles Bronson, Clint Eastwood, Satan in the 70s, and Jackie Bissett shows. Sterling Hayden of Venom from our Klaus Kinski and Oliver Reed shows. Lindsay Fulci and Policio Tesci standby Thomas Milian from our Italian Sleeves Lucio Fulci and Italian Crime shows. Kurosawa standby and our John Belushi shows 1941 Subcommander Toshiro Mifune. And our Sean Connery shows The Anderson Tapes, Ralph Meeker. The whole thing is an extremely stupid, quote, comedy, here we go again with this comedies that aren't funny, that's more of a paranoid conspiracy theory investigation a la Oliver Stone about the Kennedy assassination, right down to the Sinatra Giancana attempts to infiltrate and gain influence over JFK, the multiple shooters, and presumed government hit on him. 
Tony is the accountant and lead conspirator who wound up arranging the whole thing. You've seen, read, and heard all this bullshit before ad nauseum by an entire generation whose obsession with this crap is rivaled only by their obsessive worship and following of every influence of the Beatles, however idiotic, trivial, or maladaptive. Paul is dead. Number nine, it quite literally begs an okay boomer response. It's not funny, it's not gripping. Bridges is acting less manly than Richard Simmons, and the old folks are pretty much wasted, much like the guys who financed the whole thing. It's just a fucking mess. <laughs> so what's your take? Oh, it's a mess, but I always like it, but I watched it, and I enjoyed it while I was watching it. <laughs> you know, like, uh... How many martinis did you have <laughs> to get through it? <laughs> to get through this? Yeah, to get through this, that movie. <laughs> well, well, there's the thing, too, because there, there was, like, there's several versions of this thing out there. There's, like, yes. the 80-minute the version. A hundred minute, there's a two and a half hour version, mm-hmm. and I watched them all because yeah, I saw the two and a half hour one because I think they restored it recently. Yeah, I'm that kind of guy. <laughs> <laughs> so it's basically a thinly veiled thing about the Kennedy family and post Kennedy assassination, and then mm-hmm. I like how Tony Perkins pops up middle of picture as like this actually a pretty appropriate they got that kind of right like whiz kid of electronic technology and they got that whole thing pretty right for the time period and how like this is how the future is going to be and you know he's in this big vast computer tech place and it didn't look archaic and thank you godzilla so a, a lot of the film is about how yeah i, I don't know why he, Jeff Bridges is playing it this way. He's he's playing it kind of like uh, uh, he's having a tough time. Maybe he's having a tough time getting through with this, or maybe in just a lot of blow. Who knows? But uh, yeah, his performance is kind of weird. Yeah, it's a Starfucker movie. They, they they kind of like threw money at people. Like be in this movie, be in this movie. Richard Boone looked completely drunk. <laughs> you, you know what I'm talking about? Yes, right? yes. Every scene Richard Boone is in, he looks completely fucking drunk. <laughs> like, his lines don't come out right. And it's like, you got to be really drunk to do that. <laughs> and you got to be really crazy to film that because it's like, you're not a director. You're just like doing another day or something. Yeah. You know? It's a strange movie, but I did not dislike it. Now I went to one of your favorites, right? Yes, 1979, The Black Hole. Like Dracula and Conan, this one is a childhood favorite that, despite decades' worth of viewings, never really fails to hold up. Crossing Star Trek The Motion Picture from our William Shatner show, Silent Running from our Sci-Fi with a Message show, Space 1999 from our British cult television show, and Shakespeare with a Moonraker-esque score by none other than John Barry, this one predates the lame event horizon that everybody seems to love by at least a decade and a half and is superior to that overrated gore fest in every conceivable way. Every time I see one of those things, I expect to spot some guy in red with horns and a pitchfork. Rather explicitly tapping into the intersection of theoretical physics and esoteric metaphysics, this film serves as both sci-fi mystery, claustrophobic old dark house come slasher horror, and like the aforementioned Star Trek film, further touches on some much deeper existential questions that we could go into at length. But it may be better for listeners to refer back to our Roddy McDowell show, among others, like our Elliot Gould show for The Devil and Max Devlin, for a bit on that and Disney's brief adult and rather dark run of films around this time, including Watcher in the Woods, this film, and Something Wicked This Way It Comes, also mm. discussed in the aforementioned Gould show. 
probably the only film to effectively co-star our pals McDowell and Perkins, both of whom we've now done shows on. This one also features future Weird Scene subject Ernest Borgnine, Maximilian Schell of our Charles Bronson and Jackie Bissett shows St. Ives, Robert Forster of our Chuck Norris shows Delta Force and the entertaining Rock Hudson disaster film Avalanche. Maybe we should do a show on Rock. He comes off of uh, B-Vet and Mew of Snow Beast and Devil Dog the Hound of Hell. Tony's the civilian scientist who's a huge fanboy of Shell, and Roddy McDowell is the voice of their R2-D2-like robot drone, Vincent, who plays a major part in the proceedings. Even the ubiquitous Slim Pickens shows up as the voice of the old beat-up robot from Shell's ship, Bob. Don't let the fact that this came out through Disney fool you. This is a dark, very serious sci-fi horror where the crew discovers a long-lost recall research ship orbiting just outside the Schwarzschild radius of a massive black hole. Here comes the spoilers, so be warned if you're looking into this one, and I highly recommend that you do. There's an entirely different world beyond that black hole, a point where time and space we understand it no longer exists. We will be the first to see it, to explore it, to experience it. While it appears to be a derelict, they soon discover that the ship is in fact still inhabited, if only by Shell and a crew of robots, from the sinister weapon-bedecked Maximilian to a troop of black-garbed, almost Vader-esque drones who oddly appear to be giving one of their own a naval-style funeral, jettisoning its coffin into space. That Reinhardt sure looks to play God, doesn't he? Eventually, it's discovered that Shell is a driven maniac scientist who desire to see what lies beyond the collapsed star whose all-consuming destructive properties beggars physics and can only truly begin to be explained through a then-still-nascent quantum mechanics. Refusing the recall order decades hence, and like Bruce Dern in the aforementioned silent running, effectively murdered the rest of the crew, turning them into zombified android servants to man the ship. He'd found a way to remain just outside the orbit of the black hole and tends to pass through it to the theoretical wormhole leading to something beyond physical space, which eventually, in several main character deaths later, results in an ambiguous ending that very directly hints at a passage to hell, and for the good guys, arguably a further route to some unknown paradise. Holy shit! This was sold as a barely PG-rated Disney kids film? I fucking loved this film. As a kid, I had several, if not all, the toys. I had the Vincent, the Bob, and the Maximilian figures. And I still have the original DVD release, which gets aired out on a fairly regular basis. Strangely enough, it was helmed by a Gary Nelson, whose only other notable credits were the original, annoyingly Jodie Foster-starring version of Freaky Friday, Don't Bother, the Jamie Lee Curtis version is so far superior as beyond belief, and our canon film shows perfectly hard, Alan Quirmey in The City of Gold. So this one's a complete anomaly. Where did it come from? I don't know, but it's there, and it's great. So. Are you right about Gary Nelson? Uh, I think it was a British director who worked cheaply over here in the States, and he worked a bit, but he didn't do anything really super much of note. And so where did this come from is true, because... I remember, gosh, uh, issues of Cinefantastic magazine, the old uh, great magazine. We were talking about the filming of this, and it was like everybody was trying to trump this up. It was like the next big picture. And uh, it came out and bomb, bomb terribly for Disney because... <sighs> well, it's not a Disney film by any means. <laughs> it's not a Disney film by any means. Well, Disney bought everything now, so they have to figure out what's a Disney film or not. But back then... This was like... But back then... Can you picture all the horrified parents going to like bring their little kids? They're like, oh, look, we're going to see Hot Lead and Cold Feet. Holy shit! <laughs> oh, no. It's like, oh, we saw bed knobs and Broomsticks. Oh, what's coming out next year? It's the Black Hole. It's not a porn film. So, no. And, and, and then you see this, and you're like, oh, it's just it's like... Yeah, it's, it's Event Horizon light, in a way. 
But you know, it, it, I'm glad they gave Robert Forster that role. I, I'm, I'm glad everybody's got a good part. Yvette Mimio and all these guys. Borgnine. They, they really deserved nice roles in the major film. Yeah, Anthony Perkins has been a dick as usual. <laughs> well, he's naive. Let's put it that way. He's naive. And what an ending! Holy crap! That it was like they didn't use the gore, but it was really suggestive and close. It's like, whoa, this is a kids' film, huh? <laughs> Well, you know, somewhere, someday, we will see. You know, yeah, things, things appear, things pop. Well, it's Disney, so maybe, maybe not. But we do see a lot of stuff that shows up in time, like the uncut version. Because, yeah, I would really like to see how they originally intended this. And, yeah, looking at Gary Nelson, the director's credits, I'm like, I don't see where this came from. Exactly. But at the same time, I'm like, hey, you got one home run in your career, go for it, buddy. Yeah, and this was definitely it for him. It's an amazing picture, yes. Yeah. No doubt about it. So next year, 1980, folks, a.k.a. North Sea Hijack. I'm not a terrorist. Terrorists are confused. I don't follow politics of any kind. I have no philosophies, but I do know what I want. Tony plays action film baddie for the only time in his career as a cynical terrorist, despite his assertions to the contrary, who tries to hold an oil rig for ransom. Roger Moore, who we discussed in all three of our James Bond shows, our British cult television show, and our Tony Curtis show for his work in The Saint and the Persuaders, is the woman-hating, cat-loving, presumed closet-case misogynist of a retired Royal Navy counter-terror agent, called in the spearheaded team of frogmen to take Perkin and friends down before he can blow both rig and ship to smithereens. James Mason of our Stanley Kubrick shows Lolita, Jack Watson of the Gorgon, Tower of Evil, From Beyond the Grave, Juggernaut, and Schizo from our Hammer, Amicus, Richard Harris, and Pete Walker shows is the captain held hostage. Officious TV bit player and licensed to kills Felix Leiter, David Hedison. Michael Parks of Nightmare Beach, a.k.a. Welcome to Spring Break, from our John Saxon and Alberto Lindsay slash Italian Sleeves shows. And of all people, Jeremy Clyde of Chad and Jeremy fame. Remember them from Batman? Yeah. All played various government and Lloyds of London officials, forced to negotiate with Perkins and company. It's a very typical British film of its era, filled with oddball, if recognizable character actors, and enlivened only really by Moore's decidedly quite quirky ailerophile, who receives yet another batch of kittens as reward for his efforts, sounds like my kind of gig, and the always oddly magnetic Perkins, fairly intense terrorist. Not the sort of broad, mainstream, yet effective role anyone would associate him with. In terms of a pure film, it's like, what the hell is this? But it works because of their quirkiness, and they're being cast in roles that they really never would before or since. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, 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 Roger Moore, who was... And still is. You know, you have to respect that. Bond to people who grew up and lived during the 70s, although I always loved Connery and Craig. Yeah, see, I grew up during more, but I've come to love Connery so much more just because he's such darker and more believable, if you will. Yeah, yeah, okay. Hey, I respect what people think. You know, it's I'm not that kind of guy. But I grew up during him, too, you know, as Bond. And so it was weird. To see him as that, it was called Folks here in the U.S. Yes. And we're kind of thing, a cat-loving guy. I'm like, okay, I'll go with that. And, you know, Perkins was his kind of edgy, villainous guy. For a minute, though, I thought Moore was playing like this gay guy who liked cats. Which... That's what I thought, yeah. It, it actually kind of borders on that, but they never really come out and state it in any way. Yeah, it kind of borders on that. And, yeah, I don't know. But, yeah, I had a fun cast, and... It wasn't, it was weird, though. It's like one of those, it's funny, because Roger Moore has one of these pictures when he wasn't playing Bond. These movies were bombing. 
they they were not just doing the kind of bank that meaning you know making money that uh, the producers thought like and he was probably amiable like yo i like this role i'll do this i'll do that that kind of followed him into the 80s and early 90s because what was that film that he did uh where it's like a hitchcockian thriller i think with Roy scheider in it the last embrace or something or i don't, I don't know something like that yeah yeah yeah, yeah it did follow him for for a while so he does two more pictures. I was not able to see Deadly Companion and a TV film again called The Sins of Dorian Gray. But 1983, he does Psycho 2. Yes. Weird but surprisingly good, much-belated sequel to the Hitchcock classic from Elsie Richard Franklin. Who gave us such oddities as Road Games from a Jamie Lee Curtis show, FX2, Patrick, and The Blue Lagoon. Perkins stars as a mostly rehabilitated Norman Bates, who returns to the real world only to find, like most ex-cons, that society won't give them a chance, effectively forcing them to return to their old ways. You want to know what Norman's like? Better than you'll ever be, fat boy. Despite trying his best as a dishwasher at a local diner and meeting a cute, waifish waitress there who seems to like him, Meg Tilly, whose sister Jennifer was in our Whoopi Goldberg shows Made in America, he runs into public approbation and a sleazy, drug-dealing motel manager, Ron Jeremy lookalike Dennis Franz, of multiple Brian De Palma films like Blowout, Dress to Kill, and Body Double, who keeps trying to make his life hell. There are all sorts of little odd incidents that turn into murders that make it look like someone is trying to... Sorry, my cat's the trying to drive Norman nuts again, and it alternately seems to be Franz, Tilly, and her vindictive mother, Psycho and Vertigo's Vera Miles behind it all. But as one of the other is killed, who could be behind it all if not Perkins himself? An unusual little slasher mystery that's light on the gore and is sure to keep you guessing until the end. It's also a welcome chance to see Perkins Bates as the innocent party protagonist if a seriously fragile one on the brink of returning to his old ways. The victimizers are especially heinous and intolerable, and Perkins uses the opportunity to rewrite the character as an almost likable, sympathetic guy who's more the fall guy to a society that never actually gives second chances, despite the bullshit they feed you, than he ever is the baddie. Apparently, the Meg Tilly role was offered to Jamie Lee Curtis originally, but in the end, the softer, more nerdy, hot Tilly was a much better choice. Tilly, who I just found out from research, and this one is not only Canadian, but half Asian, it was always appealing to me, and unlike her more prolific sister, it wasn't stuck with a Melanie Griffith on helium cubie doll voice. I find her highly attractive here, and always did. Not something you'll ever really hear out of me about a slasher film heroine, Curtis inclusive, though as discussed in our show on her, she didn't do other films that were like perfect trading places and love letters. It's actually a very good slasher film if you're not in it just for the body count, and I think it's well worth the watch. What's your take on this one? Oh, I thought this film was brilliant. Yeah. I, I seriously kid you not. I thought this, when I saw this, when it first came out in the theater, I thought it was fucking brilliant. Because we all saw Psycho, which was made 60s, 23 years before this. And, you know, well known. It's ingrained in our conscience. And then we see this movie, which kind of, oh, you mean this didn't happen? And so he therefore was not maybe the guy who did this. Mm-hmm. And I like that. And they, Richard Franklin, the late Richard Franklin, who passed on, did such a great job with this. I was like, holy shit, I really like this film. Yeah. And you're right, you know, uh, Meg Tilly, very, you know, even Robert Lozier, very much, are really good. And there's, there's a stinger at the end because, of course, you had to end it that way. But overall, this is... A belated sequel to a movie that you never thought you wanted, you never thought was coming, and then you were like, holy shit, this is a great movie. Yep. And Psycho, I'm being totally serious. I think Psycho 2 is a great film. And I think Tony Perkins, 
And I think that Perkins totally invested himself in this because I think he liked the idea of like, hey, I can go back and I can not make him a psycho. I can make him somebody who's challenged and somebody who's likable. Likable, yeah, not guilty. The victim rather than the killer. Yes, exactly, as you said. Yes. No, it's a good film. Yeah. So 1984, Crimes of Passion. We had talked this one in depth on our Ken Russell show. Kathleen Turner of Romancing the Stone and War of the Roses, back when she was a smoky voice sex symbol before going the Christie Alley route, is the lead, a fashion house designer who moonlights as a hooker for kicks. Yeah, seriously. She gets involved with the guy hired to see if she's still the industrial spy the boss suspects she is, who finds out her side hustle and still wants to bang her. Tony is an especially deranged, repressed pervert with religious mania, effectively a religious right-type crust with an incel who goes around preaching the hookers while using sex toys on them. It eventually turns out that Russell swiped the motif of the Baba Manyolfi Jalo, sister of Ursula, because Tony also kills hookers with a sharpened vibrator rather than the former film's killer dildo. It's a super sleazy, incredibly horny movie. I'm sure with the cat there. It's a super sleazy, incredibly horny movie. Turner's various Johns are all major league perverts with all sorts of kink on display, and naturally Russell ran into all sorts of trouble getting it out there, much like his later, far more played for last Teresa Russell opus, Horror. But both Perkins and Turner really throw themselves into their parts, which helps the film tremendously. I always love this one, and it, once again, is so true about the religious right. You really need to figure out just how much bullshit comes down to being sexually satisfied and ridding oneself of ridiculous hang-ups we carry over from our fucking parents and absurd societal mores. Freud was right. It really does all come down to a good fuck in the end. <laughs> What's your take? Hmm, interesting. So... <laughs> No, we spoke of this in the Ken Russell show and other things. It's a tough picture. And, and uh, gosh, was Kathleen? No, she wasn't. The other one. Yeah, the other one was married to Nicholas Rogue. Um, Teresa Russell. Teresa Russell, yeah. We did some weird movies. Oh, a lot of them, yeah. I loved her. Yeah. But Kathleen Turner, yeah, she does some weird shit in this movie. I'm like, where is this coming from? It's like all out. <laughs> it's like. The most triple X movie you've ever seen by somebody who's not a triple X actress. Yes, true. Without it being triple X. I mean, <laughs> that makes any sense. Yeah. And Anthony Perkins is a complete psychopathic fuck in this. Mm-hmm. Although, for most of the movies, she's, she seems to dig it, even like guys. If you haven't seen this movie, she, she, she penetrates him <laughs> with a nightstick, y'all. And and there's a lot of weird fucking shit going on in this movie. Yeah, it's incredibly sleazy. It, it, like it's you said, in, it's it's very close to being X without actually showing anything. You're very close. <laughs> um, and not just straight X. We're talking about like kinky X. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but like, yeesh. <laughs> so it is a rough picture to see. The next one is a bit of an oddity for me. Psycho three. Yeah. Yeah, so 1986, and he was nominated the Saturn Award for Best Actor here. Things start to go downhill with this still pretty watchable sequel, directed by Tony himself, and starring gay party film mommy dearest Christina Crawford herself, Diana Scarwood, as his suicidal ex-nun who becomes his girlfriend after he tries to murder her in full mother regalia. Apparently she slid her own wrist and was so out of it she thought he was the Virgin Mary holding a crucifix. Seriously. Jeff Fahey of Serpent's Lair and the Sandra Locke directed Teresa Russell thriller Impulse is a junkie musician who takes a job as a desk clerk at the Bates Motel, whose failed fling with a local hottie winds up as Norman's first victim among several to stay at the motel. Doesn't anybody read Yelp reviews out there? 
Unfortunately for Perkins, even when Miss No More Wire Hangers gets out of the hospital and comes to Pleasure Troth, he winds up hallucinating Mother yelling at him and lets his new bow fall down the same stairs that Martin Balsam was so memorably tracking Zoom descending a few decades prior, breaking her neck. There's no redemptive thread this time. Norman is nuts from the get-go and guilty as sin, only interested in slash wanting to kill his equally wacky lady friend because he mistakes her for Janet Lee, who we discussed in our Tony and Jamie Lee Curtis shows. It's not bad by slasher film standards, but it isn't a pimple on the ass of Psycho 2, despite a few nice scenes like the ice cooler. I was really, really very disappointed in this. Yeah. Because Psycho 2 was so good, so mm-hmm. well done. We just spoke about it. Yeah. And it, it made us think, like, oh, did everything we see in Psycho, the original Alfred Hitchcock film from 1960, did was our perspective wrong? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Thank you. And then this goes to fuck with us. Like, nah, we're going to do something else. <laughs> and, and But the thing was, the something else was just cheesy. And it was just. Yeah. It was like, that was such a really good film, Psycho 2, by Richard Franklin, that. Anthony Perkins directs Psycho 3, and he's like, oh, let's just make a sequel to the original Psycho, and he's still fucking nuts and shit. <laughs> and, true. And, you know, it, it, <sighs> they dropped the ball, and they dropped the thread that they should have went with. Exactly. Yeah, I was very disappointed in this. Yeah. So, 1988, Destroyer. Would you like to finish your last meal? I think one of these motherfuckers to get up. B. NFL linebacker and TV bit player and thug Lyle Alzado gets his big break on a typically over-budgeted late 80s slasher that crosses the bodybuilder maniac shtick of Body by Jake Steinfeld's hilarious home sweet home with the horror show slash shocker storyline as a game show obsessed serial killer comes back from an electric chair death as a self-regenerating nutjob stalking the Vanna White analog he had a thing for, Waxworks Deborah Foreman. Filled with rip-offs from still lousy but far superior films like Rennie Harlan's Prison and Wes Craven's Nightmare on Elm Street films, this one is populated by the usual big studio trying to copy the indie stock bullshit like total dorks with punk hairdos and pleather jackets sporting docker pants and boating shoes, fake punk music, Kiss My Stinky White Ass is actually one of the songs, and central casting ugly guy Red Herrings. Perkins is clearly at the end of his rope here, starring as the annoyed director of a cheap-ass and, by 1988, anachronistic women-in-prison film. And aside from the comedy of Alzado's sub-Jake Steinfeld muscle-bound freakout, it's really the only reason to watch this thing, which is probably why it was sold as a twofer with Edge of Sanity. Watchable for fans of the decline and fall of the slasher film, but that's really about the best you can say for it. There's no take to... It's pretty bad. Yeah, it's (laughs) terrible. (laughs) It's the actual thing for it. So, 1989, Edge of Sanity. Yeah. A, a very sickly-looking Tony Perkins delivers one of his final performances for French sexploitation director Gerard Kikoin, probably best known domestically for Love Circles and Lady Libertine. With late Blake Seven's cast member Sue Lynn, Glynis Barber, also of Norman Warren's Terror, from our friendly pint with Norman Peachia, as his long-suffering and amazingly naive wife Elizabeth, Perkins is Henry Jekyll, whose transformation comes not due to a special serum, but a John Belushi-worthy bowl of blow, mixed with an accidental whiff of spilled ether. I'm not kidding. This fucking bowl of sniffy is ridiculous. It could have served the entire original cast of Saturday Night Live and the set of 1941 combined. How rich was this fucking guy? You gotta see this thing to believe it. Amusingly, in a blatant nod to Perkins' predilections, the first hooker he picks up as Hyde is a rather foppish new wave guy, although it's covered up a bit by showing him to be a rather over-eager procurer for the local cat house. But modern eyes will see right through that rather sorry save. I told you I'm bad. Make me pray. 
The whole shtick is that the strung-out hide is into S&M because he peeped on his father banging a hooker and got caught, leaving him with the sadly all-too-common American religious mania complexes about sex. Rather than just finding a kinky partner and enjoying himself, he's made himself into a guilt-ridden serial killer, something a whole lot of right-wing incel nutjobs need to figure out about themselves, especially these days. It's nowhere near as erotic as the usual Kikoween film, but it's certainly watchful, and the subtext is barely that, so it's well worth a watch. I enjoy it for what it is. Oh, I have a great story about this. Millimeter Films was a, was a subdivision of the uh, company that made the first Batman with Michael Keaton. And I was on that time on the screening list for their pictures. So, I, you know, I got to see Batman, uh, Michael Keaton, Jack Nicholson, a couple of Swamp Thing, the first, the first two. And then I got to see this. Got to invite the screening room, you know, okay. And I watched this thing. And I don't know if it was any different from the release version. I have to say this was very uneasy watching in the theater full of people because this is like, this borders on pornography. And it borders on insanity. It's, it's like, you know, like Frank Valerian Barachowicz. You know, those guys? Oh, yeah. Barachowicz, yeah. Barachowicz. And, and <laughs> Anthony Perkins has to go for the he looks kind of ill. Yes. And he has a go for the gusto performance here as both Jekyll and Hyde. You know, it's just totally, it, it's weird. It's almost like part portions of the film are similar to some latter-day Italian giallo pictures where they tried to, you know, do the uh, sexy girl. Uh, they dress up uh, art shows, you know, with the fashion model thing. There's a lot of fashion model stuff in this, too. But then, you know, then he's starting blow. Yes, a lot of blow. It's a crazy he's amount of blow. a whole lot of blow. And I was wondering <laughs> if he's really snoring a whole lot of blow because it looks very realistic. Yeah. It, uh, not that I know anything about this, people. <laughs> but uh, it looked very realistic to this young man. And the whole cast is whacked. <laughs> this is a strange fucking movie. You know, Gerard Kikion from France actually started out in porn, and then he did softcore, then he went back to porn. So, <laughs> theoretically, it's uh, Anthony Perkins's last day work for a pornographer. <laughs> <laughs> but it didn't get much better after this. No. <laughs> so, 1990 does another television film, Daughter of Darkness. Stuart Gordon of From Beyond, Dagon, Reanimator, and Castle Freak from our Full Moon Pictures shows directs this 1990 TV movie that tries to copy Ted Nicolaus' subspecies series, also from that Full Moon show. Cute Mia Sara from our Jean-Claude Van Damme show, the goofy Tom Cruise film Legend, and Ferris Bueller stars as a newly orphaned girl who fears drawn to visit her late father's homeland of Romania. Strangely, given how many low-budget films were being lensed there at the time, not actually Romania, but Hungary. After befriending a local taxi driver, she's led to an odd but friendly caretaker who knew him, but actually turns out to be her father himself. Turns out her father is a vampire, albeit a reluctant and self-loathing suicidal one. His fatherly concern for her becomes a major plot point from here on out, as the rest of the local vampire coven wants to exploit her as a heretofore unheard of vampire-slash-human hybrid. Apparently her recently deceased mother wasn't one, and her cabbie pal is in their service. There's a dorky love interest played for laughs right to the closing credits, in fact. And it's oddly talky and bloodless, but if you like Nicolau films for Full Moon, even outside the subspecies series, you should be very comfortable with this one. Tony, who doesn't even appear for the first half hour or so, is his usual quirky self, at first seeming a sinister red herring, but quickly becoming more of a likely odd, somewhat sympathetic, and even a bit heroic figure for the bulk of his time on screen. 
I certainly liked it for the light, somewhat bolder as entertainment it is, but unlike similar fare like I'm Dangerous Tonight, which it would have made a great double feature with, it remains unreleased. You'll have to find it streaming online, sadly enough. Hopefully somebody will correct that soon, since they did correct it for the next film. Oh, I, I wasn't able to find this, although I saw it years ago. I just can't remember. Sorry. Yeah. So the next one they did just release, I'm Dangerous Tonight, 1990. Above average TV movie of its era from Toby Hooper, who we devoted an entire show to. We didn't cover this one at the time, as I hadn't actually seen or heard of it since its original airing on USA over 30 years ago. But when I heard it was on the release schedule, I instantly recalled the title with some remembered fondness. It feels very much akin to shows like She-Wolf of London and Forever Night, and films like the Subspecies series, which finds an even closer parallel in Tony's previous TV movie, Angel of Darkness, or those Canadian no-budget horrors like Voodoo Dolls that Code Red and Scorpion used to put out. It's pretty typical of Slight Story, where a college professor gets a mysterious delivery of a huge Aztec sarcophagus, you know, if that had ever happened, and he unlocks a lament configuration-style carving that brings the spirit of the cape-bedecked corpse inside back to malevolent life. Well, the cape, anyway, which gets sold to a college college girl, cute TV actress Madgen Amick, and after briefly turning her dork boyfriend into a violent Shakespearean swashbuckler at rehearsal, occasionally possesses her every time she wears the little red number of a dress she made out of it. Strangely, there are a lot of cult film folks involved, however briefly, from Hooper himself and the Howling, Stepford Wives, and Popcorn's D. Wallace Stone to Perkins and Sartana himself, William Berger. Amusingly, even Mrs. Howell, Natalie Schaefer, is involved. Tony is likable as a dorky professor who Hooper keeps hinting may be more sinister than it seems at first glance, like when Amick encounters him and his vicious dog in the fog, or how he quotes Nietzsche to her. He's not in a lot of the film, but he's used very effectively. It's no masterwork for the ages, but damn good for a TV movie that didn't hail from the 70s, and Amick looks pretty good working it in that flamenco-ass dress. Now, the only question is, when is someone going to put out Stuart Gordon's equally decent daughter of darkness with the even cuter Mia Sarah as a companion for this one, because they really do kind of belong together. What's your take on this? It's another one I had seen years ago, but I, I could not find for this show, and so my memories are dim. <laughs> yeah, so the final one we're going to cover tonight, he actually did three more after this, I guess, bit parts. One of them's a TV film, too. Is Psycho 4. Whew. Now, this one is a fucking mess. Directed by Hocus Pocus' is Mick Garris, and starring the annoying kid actor Henry Thomas from fucking E.T., Black Christmas and Turkey Shoots Pretty But Annoying Olivia Hussey, and our Eddie Murphy and John Belushi show's recurring frenemy, John Landis, this one's a terrible TV movie that has Norman calling into one of those Dr. Ruth-style AM radio shrinks to relate his backstory of childhood abuse in flashbacks. Seriously? It's totally abominable. Apparently, Tony was already getting chemo-style treatment for AIDS, which is a horrible thing to see. Uh, my father actually shared wards with a lot of them when he was dying of cancer, so it was loads of fun all around. And he had to do some of that on set while he harangued Garris about how to direct his film. It is so not worth watching. I don't know. They put it on a set with the other two, and I'm just like, wow, these guys just left this one off. <laughs> What's your take? Yeah, you know, Mick Garris has a hit-and-miss career. He's done some interesting movies as a director. Joseph Stefano, who actually scripted the original cycle for Alfred Hitchcock wrote this supposedly, and and I don't know. This was done for Showtime, so you know, it wasn't done for American television per se. It was done for cable, but yeah, a very ill-appearing uh, Anthony Perkins is in this, playing Norman Bates, but then Henry Thomas, who is uh, one of the stars of E.T., plays the young Norman Bates. And then Olivia Hussey, who was in... Uh, Turkey Sheep, Black Christmas. Romeo, Romeo and Juliet. the uh, Zeffirelli. Zeffirelli, yes. I actually saw her a few months ago. And I walked right past her because she looked like my grandmother. <laughs> um, 
no meanness intended. Just like everybody ages, but I was like, where was she? I wanted to see her. Oh, really? Um, yeah, this is a complete fuck up. But they, I think they tried to tie this up, knowing maybe Anthony was getting ill. Yeah. Or they were trying to make a buck. I don't know. <laughs> I think the latter, but yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it would be nice to think. Oh, you know the the actor who was the uh, you know so well known for this role is is very very ill. Maybe we should do something. But no, it's probably wasn't like that. It was like, <laughs> let's make something. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, each, you know, and that's about it, I think, right? Yeah, like I said, he did something called A Demon in My View and the Naked Target. God knows what they are, probably bit parts. And then he did a TV movie called uh, In the Deep Woods. I have no idea. That was released after he already died. So uh, obviously we did not see any of those. But considering how ill he looked here is probably pretty tragic anyway. What I'd like to see is uh, he, he did host Saturday Night Live in 1976. That was really? Yeah, I'm curious to see. I was reading something about that today where he did it in, in character a little bit as mother. <laughs> so I'm like, really? That yeah, I figured, I figured they did that. Yeah. So, anyway. All right, so, yeah, that's our show on Tony Perkins. Uh, as you can probably hear, he's done a lot of odd films, but a lot of better ones that you may have that you've never even heard of. And honestly, you know, like I said, every time he's on screen, you can't really watch other people. Even when there's people that you like or big-name people or people that normally would draw your attention, it's like he's always so odd and quirky and he's always doing something. There's something about his performance, even quiet, that you're just like the eye is drawn to him. Like, what the hell? What's, what's going on here? He becomes the center of attention in, in all his films, which, you know, you can say to some extent that people like quirky character actors, like we've done shows on like Donald Pleasance or certainly Roddy McDowell, but it's not the same. Tony Perkins had a lot of stuff going on in his head and his life that he was bringing out in his performance and not just his you know, delivering his lines and his marks but his nervous tics the way he kind of you know quietly did stuff that you know was it deliberate you know is this kind of a let me upstage everybody I don't think so he didn't seem to be that kind of a guy that wasn't the vibe that you get when you hear people talk about him I think this was just natural so a very interesting guy probably one of our greatest if not our greatest character actor certainly from this country and, you know, like I said, I went into this saying, oh, yeah, let's do Tony Perkins. We've got a lot of stuff. We, he comes up a lot. We've done a lot of films with him. And it's like, holy shit, this guy's really interesting and good. So, yeah, this, uh, that's our show. So what's your take? Anything you want to close out with? No, it, it was very well presented. Yeah, you know, sometimes we choose subjects that we're familiar with or not that familiar with or we think we had a perception of them. And as we watch more other films, we get a different uh, vibe on them. We get a totally different perception of them. And in a way, that's that's what's fun about our show. For us, and hopefully for you guys listening, it's like, oh, I never knew that before. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't think I've seen that movie. Maybe I'll check it out. Or you guys speak so much fun about it, or you speak so highly about it, maybe I'll go check it out. Yeah, and it's often, if not always, not the ones that are like, oh, you've got to see this. Like, yeah, those really aren't the good ones. It's the stuff that people don't talk about as much as sometimes is the most interesting, revealing, or most enjoyable one that you'll have the most repeat views of. So that's what we're trying to do. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You know, we, we, we sometimes, well, we have covered a lot of the major uh, shit list of uh, – <laughs> genre film people mm -hmm. over the years and uh, we're doing the character actors now or unusual character actors 
or interesting directors or, you know, whatever. Directors, yeah, because there's, there's something in there. I mean, there's a couple of people I try to push toward your edge. You haven't bitten yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's there's, there's things going on there. It's like, oh, shit, this movie's really good. Or this is an amazing performance. Or the movie may not be great, and the performance may not be great, but there's something going on with this actor mm-hmm. or actress that is, like, definitely worth taking notice. Yeah, not totally agree. And that happens a lot, especially lately. Because, you know, yeah. in the beginning when we were doing genre films, I was like, okay, I knew this stuff, I loved it, I wanted to talk about it, you knew it, you had experience writing about it, there we go. And I was like, okay, let's cover this. All of a sudden, we started morphing to these other people. I'm like, yeah, but they're famous. You know, I know a couple, well, they did enough good films, and we could talk at least about those, and we'll see if they did anything else. And I'm discovering all kinds of films, like, wow, who the hell knew this? You know, like, yeah. I'm getting different perspectives of people like, you know, George Siegel or Elliot Gould or uh, <laughs> Tony Perkins, for example. Tony Perkins, yeah. So, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's fun for us as well. So... Anyway, uh, thanks for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoyed our little drawing room chat on Tony Perkins. Uh, next time, we will be covering Sophia Loren. Yes, we will. Bring the lube. We respect her. We respect her. <laughs> well, hell, I covered Bardot because I'm a huge Bardot fan. And actually, it was through this show, uh, doing the Tony Perkins, that I saw Loren in that one film. I'm like, Wow, she's really hot. I was like, maybe I should check out her films again. Because <laughs> over the years, I had checked out, you know, the Mastriani ones. I'm like, you know, some parts are good. Some parts are like, yeah, I don't know uh, about this. But, and then I ran across that one for the other show, I believe, Boccaccio 70. I, I think we had discussed one of those episodes in one of the films. And I was like, oh, my God, yeah, we got to do a show on her. Because I just kept watching more and more of her films. And I was pushing it to you, like, you know, we should probably do this because I've seen so many of these things. It was like with Whoopi Goldberg. We're watching all these damn things. I'm starting to write down about them, you know, my takes on them. It's like, we should do a show on this. Like, I don't know. No, I don't know if I want to do her. Trust me, let's do this. <laughs> although, although we're we're letting people know in advance, uh, because she has such a lengthy career, what we're going to do is cherry pick. Yeah, yeah, we yeah, definitely. There's, there's, no there's a lot of stuff we can't even get, and other things we're just like, yeah, whatever. Uh, yeah, and, and, yeah, the things we cannot revisit. Um, yep. so. There's a few yep. I wish yep. I could have. You know, Ghost Italian style. I would love to have seen that, but you know. Well, it's thirty years ago. It's okay. It's very light. It's very you know. But there are some. Coming key ones in there for sure that we'll be hitting so yes yes okay so, i'll be next so thanks for joining us tonight again we hope you enjoy a little drawing room chat on tony perkins next time sophia loren if you'd like to contact us here comments suggestions or you're a filmmaker or musician who'd like to join us on air drop us a line at our facebook page facebook.com forward slash weird scenes one or our website weird scenes one dot wordpress.com we're also on twitter at weird scenes one we're also on Podbean, of course third eye cinema Podbean.com. and we're on itunes you can look us up under third eye cinema weird scenes inside the goldmine podcast or we are if you're a particular id five five three four oh two oh four four we're also on spotify and amazon podcast again just look us up under third eye cinema weird scenes inside the goldmine podcast weird scenes inside the goldmine brought to you by the new and improved third eye cinema weird scenes network now on Podbean. so anything else you want to close out on or uh, we'll see you next time yeah we'll see you next time which will be whenever that will be but thank you for <laughs> listening as always
every Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Tune in to Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters. Cult, grindhouse, drive-in, independent, and underground film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors, and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by boardroom committee. These are the problems of the auteur, the visionary, the dreamer, the outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. What is At Eye Level? A reductio ad absurd and look at the headlines from politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you've got to have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. And try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network, on Blog Talk Radio. on Tuesday nights at 6.30 Eastern for an exploration of the many roads and methods which promise to lead us to the ultimate answer, a higher purpose, the meaning of life. I'm just like a lot of you, a middle-aged mom with piles of laundry and a meditation practice. I've been down many roads to get where I am today, and my journey is far from finished. But I'd like to share my experience and hard-earned wisdom with you. So what is it about women and spirituality? It seems like we're always the first to try out something new. Christianity was spread in large part by wealthy women. And where would Uncle Al be without a scarlet women? Who is by and far the largest audience of new age alternative spirituality? What is it about us that always has us seeking? And why does it always seem that men tend to take over what we discover? Join us for a dialogue between two long-lost friends representing both the yin and yang aspects of the whole, each of whom have traveled multifarious paths all across the spectrum of spirituality, the dark side and the light, from the organized to the out of the way. This show is for all those frustrated in their quest who've been through various stops on the spectrum of spirituality and found them ultimately unfulfilling. Join us for some hard-earned lessons and thoughts on potential new directions and possible value in what inevitably fails in organized practice, but which may have some merit to the solo practitioner, fellow seekers of truth, in this journey towards life. Moving towards life. Lessons in life and spirituality from unconventional seeker. Bringing more to you, only here on the Big Papa Online Network. On Blog Talk Radio. Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Join us for Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell as Doc Savage, Lois Paul, myself, discuss the beloved, the Katie, 
the career and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soullessly derivative mire of our modern age. Tune in, turn on, and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television right here on Weird Seats Inside the Goldmine. Only here on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. Hey. Hey, what's up? So, how'd you do for the holidays? I, <laughs> I stayed in. I, I was in Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Originally, me and my friend, we were like, well, let's go do something, you know, and we usually have the wives. His wife is in the Philippines, and my wife is in the Philippines <laughs> for six weeks. Right. And so we're looking around, and, you know, uh, the prices seem to have gone higher. You know, when we had, you know, him and her and me and mine, it was like, you know, uh, for a couple, it was like, you know, you're looking at, like, you know, 160 180 and then there's the tip, and then that doesn't include drinks. So, you know, yeah. it's expensive night out. But I was looking, I found a few things, and then I finally said to him, you know what, it's, it's kind of crazy. It's just you and me, and these are places we've been to. Mm-hmm. But I said, it's just not worth it. Yeah. Because I couldn't find seating at one place past 3 p.m. Jeez. Okay. So uh, what's the idea of going out for New Year's Eve? You know, and they're all specific menus, like special menus. Yep. I was like, yeah, this is fucking nuts. And then he said, well, you want to go with me and my friends instead? I said, well, who are these guys? Mm-hmm. And he showed me he got an invite on Facebook. It's a singles party. I said, dude, we can't go to that because if we show up, we can't say we're there because it's a singles group. Yeah. When he was single back in the day, I guess before he met his wife, mm-hmm. he used to hang out with these guys and girls. And it's funny. We ran into the, one of the women at a bar one time in the city, and he goes, oh, hi, you remember me? And she completely, like, look like she didn't or didn't want to talk to him. <laughs> and I said, why are we hanging out with a singles group? We're not single. And, you know, yeah. you, and these guys have been around for, what, 10 plus years? Mm-hmm. So are they still single? You know, <laughs> can't exactly say, I'm at this bar with uh, 14 single guys and, you know, a bunch of women. And, you know, no, you can't do that. <laughs> and I said, I'm not a big, you know, I'll have a few in the house. And, you know, we go out, I'll have a beer or two. I rarely have a cocktail when we go out anymore because the prices. Yeah. I said, I don't want to go out for a night drinking. There's no food involved there. Yeah. You know, what, what are we doing? Exactly. So at the last minute, I said, you go. So instead, the motherfucker <laughs> posted that he was in the, in the neighborhood eating alone okay. at, a, at a new restaurant. I'm like, oh, you went there. <laughs> instead of... And he and it, they weren't doing a New Year's Eve thing. They were doing a regular menu. Right. And I'm like, okay, enjoy. <laughs> so uh, that was New Year's Eve day and uh, Sunday. I didn't hear from him, but I think it's all about football. Yeah. And uh, yesterday too, I think. So uh, yeah, you know, I, I had one extra martini on, on both days, so it's kind of like. Hey. <laughs> But I got a lot done. I really did. I cleaned the house really well, except the bathroom, which I'm going to tackle maybe tomorrow. And I recorded two Colors of Prague things. Mm. You know, I, I did all my notes one morning, and then I did all this stuff. And then so I did. I said, you know what? I'll do one, and then I'll do another one. And I won't put them up on the weekends because it doesn't, regardless, irregardless of how many subscribers I have, you put shit up on the weekends. Nobody really looks at it. Yeah, that's true. So I said, I'll just put them up this week. 
it was so nice of me to go into the city yesterday, you know, mm. to just, all right, all he wants to hang out, I'll go in the city, and, you know, I was a little brisker than I thought, but uh, I, I even wore a mask, you know, when you know you hit those those Chinatown crowds of tourists, oh, yeah. like, these fuckers, they don't move. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, but no, I, and I said, oh, I'm kind of hungry, but... Wow, those Italian little Italy restaurants, yeah. those prices are ouch. Yeah, I don't know what's going on. Even stupid shit like eggs and milk and even today we went looking for potatoes and like, what? It's literally the prices have doubled inside of like, I don't know, a year, year and a half, two years. Yeah, like, yeah. How eggs, can you justify eggs this? Five or six dollars. No. Like, how the fuck can you justify this? There's no. Okay, when we had that bullshit with oh COVID, nobody's producing. All right, fine. Then they said, oh look, this scow, wherever the hell it was, blocked up the Panama Canal, or wherever it was, the Suez Canal. And okay, so all the trade lines are screwed up. Okay, fine. We're long past all this shit. Now it's just totally down to some asshole saying, hey, we're making a lot of money. Nobody's working for us. We're making like quadruple the profits. Let's jack the prices. What the hell? We got a cornered market. Really? I mean, whatever happened to the New Deal? What happened to trust busting? That's really what it comes down to. No regulation. You know, Reagan just fucked us all, and we're starting to really reap the benefits of that, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 went, I went to two places. Like, hey, you guys got a lunch menu? No, it's a regular menu. Oh, yeah. yeah, and I think a lot of the buffets might have gone away, too, just because of COVID. Oh, yeah, and there's, there's no buffets anymore. Yeah, so it's like, what's the point? There's nothing. So I went this one place a uh, block away from Umberto's Clam House, mm-hmm. you know, famous place, which looked kind of skeezy. Like, you guys really want to keep it in the 70s, <laughs> you know? I'm like, it's probably good, but I'm not going to eat there. Yeah. And you never know. So uh, I ate in a place right across the street from there. The fucking menu was like uh, spaghetti and meatballs, $42. Like, fuck. <laughs> and then this guy, yo, <sighs> I don't know. He said, what would you like? I said, well, yeah, g- give me a beer. Like, you don't give me a fucking glass in your upscale place like this. Really? You should get a fucking <laughs> glass with the beer. Wow. Yeah, it wasn't, they don't have draft in these places. But, yeah, at least give me a glass, pour a beer in the glass. Mm-hmm. And so I'm looking, and I'm like, yeah, it's early, though. I don't want to eat heavy like this. Yeah. So I just got an antipasta. It was fine. <laughs> but I, I, $25. Oh, for a beer and an antipasta? That was the cheapest thing in the menu. Holy shit! And you saw the picture of antipasta. It wasn't a, there was no there was no cauliflower. There was no there was not much anti in there. <laughs> wow, well, our New Year's was a lot more up. calm and sedate. <laughs> you didn't bring me out oil and vinegar until I was halfway done. He goes, I'm sorry, I forgot. I'm like, oh boy, hope you didn't expect to leave your tip. <laughs> It's, yeah, you know, because that's all I wanted, really. Yeah. You know, it was like, it's like, good thing I wasn't hungrier. I would have probably said, let me find a cheaper. Because I, I, you know, even though I'm in China, I don't really eat Chinese food. Yes. But yeah, that's just crazy. Been there, done that. Yeah, and I went to the DVD place my friend posted about it a couple months ago. And he said there was a fire upstairs and it closed. And he said, oh, I think they're back open. There were a lot of duplicates. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were some interesting things. I don't know. I haven't seen a VC. I, I might have still have some in the house, maybe in the closet, some VCDs. But they're only two dollars. Yeah, DVDs too. And, and uh, I was kind of looking for it, you know, because I know 88 films is coming out. They remastered all the Michelle Yeoh pictures. I saw that, yeah. Yeah. Finally, somebody's doing that. But even Diabolic was like, coming soon, coming soon. Now it's delayed like May. I'm not doing a pre-order for May. You're not going to remember. And isn't 88 one of those ones that's uh, Region 2? They're not all Region? Yeah, the re- yeah, Region 2. It's just fine. I got I got, I got two all Region players. Mine broke a long time ago, so I'm like, <laughs> I 
I got a couple oh, of discs. I'm like, I'm fuck with those, but the rest of them I can watch. I can watch all the DVDs, but Blu-rays, forget it. But they're, they're not too bad on the. They're, they're like 160 dollars now. <laughs> <laughs> I bought mine. I was like, oh my god, it's so much, and they're so tiny. Yeah. Name brands too, but anyway, um, yeah. So you know, 88s. First they were going to release them in December. Now and then January. Now it's May, and every time I go to Diabolic, they're like, these things are expensive. Mm-hmm. Number one. Like crazy ass expensive. That's what I'm saying. It's wish pricing now. Yeah. It used to be you have a MSRP that was something stupid like thirty bucks or something. You'd always get it for like sixteen bucks. And now it's like, oh yeah, let's put a hundred dollars, two hundred dollars. I'm like, holy shit, you only got fifty percent off. That's ridiculous. There's no way anybody's gonna be able to get this. And you know, I've got labels that are saying like, oh yeah, you know, last year because of they had issues like pressing vinyl or something. There was like a big callback with that. But they're also like. You know, because of all this crazy inflation globally, you know, we're losing money hand over fist. You know, the place is ready to go under for this. And if these fuckers are like, yeah, what the hell? Let's uh, say this uh, four films can be $200. Fuck you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I was, I knew, I'd seen this stuff years ago. I probably rented it and dubbed it onto VHS, but who knows what happens to it. Yeah, I saw some people releasing, I never heard of them, but some label that's putting out like Red Spell, Spells Red, and all this kind of stuff. I was like, oh, jeez, I remember reading about that, but I never got to see it even oh, back in the VHS days. Is, is that Cauldron? Maybe Cauldron. Maybe, yeah. But I'm like, really? And it's like, oh, only available through our site and some ridiculous wish pressing thing. I'm like, yeah, okay. I don't think so. <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, even those uh, really like uh, super boutique labels, I go to some of those sites and they only release like six titles. I'm like, oh, yeah. oh, oh. Exactly, yeah. In the past, I'd done some of those things when they were cheap. I mean, I remember getting stuff from Massacre that was like, I don't know, 16 bucks or something like that for a nice Blu-ray set of whatever, Enter the Devil or something. But you know, nowadays, forget it. Like everything they say is like 40 bucks, 50 bucks, 60 bucks, 100 bucks. Like, yeah, I don't think well, so. Well, you know, the thing is, Everybody's picking the wrong movies to release. That too. Yep. There, there, you know, there's, there's so much good because I really had an effect on my. I did see some of these theatrically myself in China, but I saw a shitload on on Chinese VHS, which has <laughs> sometimes Mandarin and Cantonese. No, you didn't have a choice. It was one, one below the other, and yep. English. So if the movie was in Cantonese, it was Mandarin subtitles with English. So, you know, you got used to it. And and so I just seen you know really good adventure films and really good uh, action pictures in the you know in the Wu mode and some pretty cool horror films you know I saw a lot of that stuff all those Category Threes and stuff back in the nineties oh I love the yeah. Category Threes yeah because yeah. they they had to edge some of the good ones and some of the ones that were comical and edgy were still pretty good. Even when my wife was down here, we used to go to a place that was local that had some of those things you could take out. And I was getting them right into like 2003 or four or something like that. And after that, I was just like, you know, the ones they're putting out now suck. I've got all the ones on VHS at the time, you know, like burns and rips and whatever the hell that I wanted. So I was like, yeah, who cares? We're going to stop doing this. And then, you know, the whole thing went away anyway. <laughs> well, yeah, but, but whatever, yeah, what I wanted to say is everybody's putting out these like gruesome. I mean, these fucking things were gruesome when I saw them. Like, oh, yeah. I'm watching for posterity if I can get through it, but like some of these were rough, you know it. And, oh yeah, and that's, that's why I never saw that one. Red was red, and it was like centipede horror, and I was like, you know, it's like worse than the Boxer's Omen. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and rate me tomorrow, and oh yeah, I saw about that too. I just ignored it. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, come on, certain people I know are like salivating, or they talked to Wayne to do. I did the audio commentary on this. Good. Fucking pat yourself on the back when you jerk off into some blood and gore. Cause exactly. Like the one with the fat Mexican guy. It's like the devil brings him back to go and rape women or some shit. I'm like, really? 
this is what you're putting out? <laughs> Did no. you see that? You know what I'm talking about, right? That, yeah, that, no, it's fun. I was like, what the fuck? Really? That's what you're going to put out? Okay, whatever. <laughs> I saw Vinegar Syndrome did a Santa movie. I'm like, yes. that's actually a good one, though. So I would like to do that, but again, the prices are so crazy. I'm like, all right, whatever. When it's like 60, 75% off, call me. <laughs> one one day, but you know, people people don't respond to our stuff when we put stuff up. Yeah. They really don't. But if we see something, we'll get the people from the labels commenting on, on our pages, yep. you know? Yep. Always. I would like to say, are you guys fucking blind? Because you know what's bugging the shit out of me lately? Mm-hmm. These slip covers, slip oh, covers. Oh, the ugly art. What the ugly art? And Trump, you're like, oh, yeah, this is great. We got this art from Joe Blow from Canada. I was like, the art sucks. Just use a poster or something, whatever. That guy that guy who posts on the Colors of Prague, Mike Campbell, yeah. he's, he's, he's got some talent. You know, he's he's got some, you know, he does some airbrushing, a lot of it influenced by uh, by the guy who does, does the yes stuff. But he's got talent. I like this. But the, these, I mean, the faces aren't even right. They're, they're drawn by, it's like, I hate to say it, but it almost looks like they didn't graduate art school. <laughs> yeah. What the hell? This stuff looks terrible. And then when you, whether it's VS or Severin, if you go on the web page and, you know, you look at the releases, they're like, and you can get these uh, limited edition by uh, Harvey Blow's mother. Yep. For extra for, money. Yep. For extra money. And sometimes money. they try to sell them as posters. I remember, uh, you know, who used to do a shitty version of this? Not with the artwork, but Alpha Video. I remember they used to do those cobbled together horrible art things where they take somebody's face and put it high and then they have like one scene in the back. And they were selling those as posters. I'm like, this art sucks. Are you crazy? <laughs> so that reminds me of that. I got the Severin Kinski Vampires in Venice poster because I actually liked mm-hmm. it. Normal size. But it was like 16 by 23 or something. It's five bucks. Mm-hmm. I'm like, all right, you know. I actually thought they were going to... They said they would fold it if you bought it with something else. Yeah. But they sent this huge box and it was in a tube. You know what I remember that was funny? Back when Media Blasters was still a thing, there was some girl that was working there, you know, working, I guess, the art department for the putting the covers together or whatever the hell else. And they had some horrible release called, like... I think it was really called Plankton, but they called it something from the deep or whatever. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, remember the bad cartoon art on it? And this girl was making fun of this thing left and right, you know, at, at the table at one of the shows, like one of your shows probably, back when they were in Sea Caucus. Crown Plaza or Sheridan? One of those places, yeah. yeah. And she's like going on about the girls there. It's like, yeah, you know, they airbrush them all to make them look like they're hot or something. Like, God, I, I was there, I was watching them. I was like, oh, man, they have to do a lot of work to make them look good. And But the art, she was ripping at the shreds. And for good reason, it looked stupid. You know, it looked like uh, the worst indie comic of the 90s. And yet, you know, that's the kind of stuff that they're pushing now. And all these labels are doing it. I don't know if they just can't afford the poster art, which, okay, one thing. Or if they just don't want to do the usual bullshit with the heads or what. But, oh, my God. And some of these things have been out before on DVDs or other companies' Blu-rays. And they had something that was either the poster or something akin to it. You know, something from some country somewhere. You know how they release these things in 20 different countries and they have all these different posters. It, you know, Carl Ryan's only interest in, in promoting his magic gig shit nowadays. <laughs> This magician shit, mm-hmm. because I don't even see a media blaster's table anymore. Yep. But I remember the last few years of him sitting at the table before he started doing the magic stuff. Mm-hmm. I, he might have always been doing it, but then suddenly he decided that was like, his main gig. Yeah, that's his main gig. And he had a couple of boxes at the table. And said, "What's this? Well, you know, we have a subdivision label of hentai." Yep. And I'm like, I'm going to the box. I'm like, Oh my. God, this is you know, not just Wandering Kid, but this is really interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm like, 
how much are these? Oh, they're 35, Lewis. Yeah. They're 40 minutes long. Why are they 35 hours? Because it's porn. I thought they could sell it for more back then. I remember that. Yeah. And, <laughs> oh, you do? Okay, yeah. I, I, was, I was like, like why like, is it, you know, because it's always doing anime. I'm like, no, you don't. You just do this, like, skanky hentai. And, okay, you're talking about Wandering Kid. That's one thing. It was, that was watchable. And some of those old classics, you know, Angel of Darkness, or, okay, that's fine. That was ADV, but still. Or the infamous Urtsuki Doji, which the first installments were decent, and then it went crazy. Uh, yeah. But, you know, it was like this shit. Like, what are you getting here? Where are you finding this stuff? It was like the lowest bar of the lowest bar. And that was all they put out. I'm like, wow. Yeah, and the response was like, well, you know, getting the rights and subtitling and hiring a voice And guest. he claimed that, oh, yeah, because I was talking about I was like, why are you putting all this crap? And I knew somebody that worked there, too. And I'll go, and I was like, what, what is all this? He's like, yeah, well, you know. Uh, apparently that's the stuff that sells all the cult Italian stuff he was putting out and whatever the hell else wasn't really paying the bills that this shitty anti was. Yeah, but you, I mean, it's the same thing. You and I have had this conversation multiple times, yeah. which is you really want to make a buck, price down. Yes. More people will buy. That's the problem. Everybody's pricing up when nobody can afford it, and everybody's like going broke basically trying to keep up. And I see people constantly, oh, I missed this, I missed that. Oh, no, the resellers are gouging. And that's all they're focusing on. It's like, okay, well, we got this FOMO thing. Quick, get it limited edition before the resellers get it and jack it up even more. I'm like, really? That's your big selling point? It's like worse than what Code Red was doing. You know, rest in peace, but geez. <laughs> I wonder whatever happened. Did I, uh, I forgot what that label was called, but I wonder what happened to all that stuff you put out. Yeah, I have no idea. Uh, what they call that thing? Anime Works? That was a Something like Yeah, that. I think that was a but. I mean, he even had two. He was might a, have, yeah. There was a guy always near the wall of this place, the back wall, and the dealer's room was cut in half this time, the last dealer I went to, so it was even less vendors. He had a lot of Japanese live-action stuff. Mm-hmm. I thought he was a little pricey at 15 to 20 but he gave me a piece of paper, and I went to the website. I've since lost it. I don't know why I didn't bookmark it unless it changed. Mm-hmm. And the stuff was 10 bucks online. Wow. Yeah, and some of the stuff looked pretty cool, like uh, Euro spy stuff done in Japan. But here, really, get sixty four to seventy, oh, which I'm really interested. I wish I knew about that. <laughs> and he had some uh, Nikatsu type stuff, but done by a different studio. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe so that's interesting because they always kind of pull the punches sometimes. Yeah. There were other studios that did it. They just weren't quite as big. I remember that. Uh, was it what Toho went to or Shochiku? I forget. Yeah, yeah, Shochiku. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I, uh, I don't know. I just lost contact with the guy. I was like, damn. Yeah. And and. But that was back he, in the day when you could get something from those shows, or they'd have actual website sales, or they'd sell it through another place, and they would drop them after a while, just get out of the studio uh, in the warehouse. Yeah, he was at the last show, and he had two boxes of mm-hmm. these things, but. They were all like the reproductions of the original Japanese, wherever you got it from, DVD or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's like, you have no idea what it is. <laughs> exactly. And then you, you feel like the ultimate sleaze are like, so what is this one about? <laughs> <laughs> and I see that the only one I remember being at those shows that used to pull this kind of crap where they just wouldn't drop the prices and they were crazy was, believe it or not, the fellow I interviewed a couple of times. So, you know, usually I got on with good. They had different labels, you know, EI Pops in or whatever the hell. They, they had a whole bunch of oh, things to put out. Yeah, yeah. And every time I went to the table, it was like, how much is this? $30. $30. How about this one? $30. I'm like, are you fucking crazy? You're at a show. You're getting this crazy MSRP? Get out of here. I could buy this in a store somewhere. Like, they used to sell through Best Buy a lot of times. I get this thing for 10 bucks. I might be able oh. to get it off you if you were, like, reasonable like everybody else. But, you know, 12 or 15 well, 30 bucks. I'm like, get out of here. 
<laughs> well, VS VS was at the last show. David Severn was not, right? Which was interesting. I said Severn's not here. He goes, yeah, I know. Okay. These guys usually keep in contact with each other. Yeah. He had some Mondo Macabro stuff. Mondo's putting out some interesting stuff again. And yeah, they're they're, they're active again. I said good because they they they're kind of pricey. Yes. And he had them, he had them for a little less. The Mondo stuff. But the vinegar syndrome stuff was like dirty, Lewis. The Blu-rays are dirty. I'm like. Why do you guys make a – it costs you more money to make a Blu-ray with a DVD inside the case making the two-disc set. Just yeah. make a Blu-ray. I always said that. I was like, do one or the other. Fuck it. I mean, come on. <laughs> or, or do a run of DVDs and then do a run of Blu-rays, and you could justify, okay, the Blu-ray's 25, the DVD's 20. Even that, uh, I would have never bought them at those prices. But, yeah, I get but you. No, I'm just generalizing. Not that I'm even agreeing with what I just – I'm just saying, you know, putting it out there, whatever. Yeah, just a general idea. Usually when I ran into – and it was Brandon, the guy you usually sent for Chiller, and I, oh, I said, how much? Gave him a small stack, and he's like, I said, ouch. <laughs> yes. I mean, you used to say 15 you know, a lot because, you know, yeah, oh, you exactly. I know you for years. I'm like, for a show special. I said, these are the same prices you have online. Why would it, I could have just ordered them. I Wait, got a whole months. huge collection of stuff that nowadays would probably cost somebody a fucking million dollars or something. That was getting for, you know, five bucks, ten bucks, tops yeah. 13. And we're talking about DVDs, Blu-rays, and, you know, all kinds of exotic shit. We're not talking about, like, okay, you know, I got some Bronson films. No, I mean, like, Italian horrors and Spanish horrors and Japanese horrors and whatever the hell else. Anime, all kinds of weird shit. I, you could never do that nowadays. You couldn't even think about it. And they're re-releasing the old stuff that used to get, like, you know, two on a disc or something like that. Okay, well, we cleaned it up a little bit for Blu-ray. Maybe, if you didn't already have the prior Blu-ray, but it was a lot cheaper. And they oh, charge oh, you know, the okay. price of, like, six of them. I'm like, really? Are you fucking crazy? Who's going to buy this? And who's not going to sell it right back off? They make the money back and get another Did one. Did you <laughs> see one of Tim Lucas's posts? Not about his situation. I had a long talk with a close friend who has known him for decades. Mm -hmm. uh, everybody's kind of worried behind the scenes. Yeah, no kidding. I've, I've seen this stuff. I'm like, wow, okay. No, like seriously, we're all kind of concerned because, like, you gotta don't spend Christmas Day scanning three thousand pictures. Exactly. No, well, you know, I get it in a way because I get it in a way too. But you, you, you got to keep active, so I know what he's doing, but it's not the healthiest. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, and these are also two people that rarely went out. They really did anything and this is why he's the uh, capo de capo of criticism the fucking guy stays home all the time <laughs> anyway he listed a uh, bunch of audio commentaries he's, he's done maybe prior up to that mm -hmm. or whatever i'm like six of these things just came out and, and they're from different labels the ones that are coming out and i'm like you know i don't think i remember somebody jumped on me Months ago, when I said, who's going to buy another one of this? Yeah. And now it says, yeah, another one. There's another Planet of Vampires coming out. That's the thing. I've talked about those other people, too. And someone was complaining on a thread, and I joined in. I was like, yeah, be fucking kidding me. All right, if you haven't seen it before, or you couldn't afford it last time around, somehow magically you can afford it for five times as much now, I get it. All right, that's no problem. I've got CDs that I've gotten in remastered bonus tracks and stuff that I didn't have, had a cassette back when or whatever. And I'm grateful to get that. Yeah, it's good. But for the rest of you, anybody that's collected these things before, how many fucking times do you expect, oh yeah, you know, let me get this new one just because it's got a new commentary or because it's got a new cover or because they slightly upgraded the color or something. Really? I don't think so. And they claim that that's their bread and butter. Like, oh yeah, because they got these cheap, what do they call it, relicensing? Mm -hmm. Where they get it from other labels and then put it out again with their label on it and somehow they make a bunch of money off of this? I mean, really? Who's buying them? Well, that's why <laughs> that's why Severn often has that dump sale for like $10. Oh, yeah. 
Because Severin seems dead to me. It's interesting that you mentioned them before not showing up, because it's always the same stuff. They don't seem to put anything new out. Yeah, I think they lose their... Um, somebody told me, I forgot who it was. I don't know how true it was. Somebody told me they recently put out a lot of stuff, and they actually, the people that gave them the prints, which were very nice, yeah, didn't actually own them. Oh, shit. So That's they, happened before. Yeah, so they put out a lot of shit, and, you know, at these huge prices, and then suddenly they got dump them because, you know. People... That has happened before. And even recently, I think, was it Severn did that too, where they put out Castellari's Last Shark or something, and it was out for like a week, so it never got a chance to drop prices at all. And it was like, okay, Universal came after him with the Jaws thing and pulled it right away. So it's like, oh, look, it's a special... Same thing happened to Vinegar Syndrome early on, but that was with some low-budget thing, Savage Water, where they sent me the disc, I reviewed it, and then it was like, okay, well, we're going to release this one movie with something else, because we can't have Savage Water out there anymore, it's going to suit us. And it's the same thing there, it's like Deep Blood or Last Shark or something. Uh, yeah, yeah. It was out for like a minute, and then Universal made them pull it. I'm like, what the hell? And somebody else had that problem with, I think it was Films of the World or somebody. They had licensed them from uh, those guys, and they didn't really own the rights, so all of a sudden all that stuff was like, and maybe it was BCI Eclipse, I have no idea. This is years ago we're talking. Yeah, that shit happens. It's pretty bad. Oh, yeah, and, you know, I like Lisa Petrucci. Oh, Lisa's great, yeah. Lisa's great, but, you know, they're putting out the stuff through Agfa, mm-hmm. wherever they are, and <laughs> and now everybody's saying, well, the quality's like shit, you know. Yeah. Well, they admitted that right off the bat. That's why they put, like, you know, 12 movies on a disc or whatever the hell they're doing it. Seven movies uh, on it. It's like, I don't know, you know. And, you know, the train left for the Doris Bushman adulation, I think. Oh, yeah. Now that's long over. See, the reason that I was excited about this, because first off, my wife loves them, and she only loves certain films out of this collection that I got. She likes the Godzilla stuff. She likes those. She likes some of the Japanese spy stuff or whatever the hell else, the Ultramans, things like that. Yeah. But with those, not only she loves them, but we had a lot of them. Not all of them because some of them they put out an image where we're like you know DVD or from something weird and that was great at the time but they don't fucking work they have like a a five minute lifespan and then they just lock up all the time halfway through so I'm like ah jeez and I know a while back there was something where I think when she was right before she closed down the uh, DVD or section and I was like yeah you know I got this batch of stuff here a couple of directors that you know they just keep locking up it's like, it was like oh well you know for some reason I forget what it was maybe it was because of that interview I did with Mike or whatever it's like okay you know what we'll, we'll work something out here and she got me a bunch of things like the Max Picus films and you know, did them again for me, but without the covers, so now they don't do that crap. Mm. So it's like a better, I don't know, it's a better quality, but it plays better in players. And I was like, ah, shit, I forgot about those damn Wishmans, because we had a whole bunch of DVDRs there. And the same problem with any, something weird stuff. And that was like, yeah, a couple of years it's been. I was like, ah, jeez, I wish I'd remember those two or whatever, and, you know, we swapped uh-huh. them out for something else. And then all of a sudden, they are like in big batches on, I think one was like eight films, one was seven films, something like that. And I'm like, okay, well, if I can get these for a reasonable price, which I managed to do, you know, this would be a good Christmas gift for my wife. And they all kind of came out this year, so I was like, all right, well, wait on the price for this one. The next one was coming out. I got to do some press that way. And then there was a pre-order for this. It came out just past Christmas, but yeah, that's why I got those. Oh, you got them? Okay. Yeah. But otherwise, usually I'm like, eh. You know, look, it's even like when they're putting out those sets that, I don't know who the hell's doing, is it Severn Vinegar Syndrome, whatever, where they're putting out the ones of all the Ray Dennis Steckler or all the Milligans or all the, you know, there's a couple people that did that with. I'm like, yeah, but I got a lot of these films. They're not that great. Some of them I got, like, the Code Red versions, like on the Milligan stuff. I'm like, I don't need this again, especially not for the crazy prices you guys are asking. I'm like, eh, you know, if I'd never had these films before, maybe, but nah, not worth it at all. So I totally agree with what you're saying about Agfa. Yeah, well, those two sets, 
I'm probably interested more in the Milligan over the Steckler. Yeah. I mean, both. Both are good. But here's the thing. The, the, the movies are terrible. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, this is like junk cinema. This is the junk of the junk. Yeah, junk cinema. I, I think I would be more interested in watching the Milligan again mm-hmm. because at least he he had a sort of Ed Wood type. Uh, well, we haven't spoken in a while. I guess that's why we're catching up so much. But, yeah, he had sort of an Ed Wood type about him, but he did theater. You know, he directed live theater. So he, he kind of knew more about what he was doing. They all did in a way that's all kind of in that same ballpark. The thing about Milligan is he's catty as shit. Because Steckler was funny and weird, and he had some oddball things like, you know, Incredibly Strange Creatures and, you know, Atlas King, which became a big joke after Mystery Science, and his whole cash flag persona. But, you know, they're just low-rent films that are mildly amusing and, you know, somewhat enjoyable, but so what? Wishman is her own thing, which is, you know, really bargain basement, but hilarious if you're into it. Apparently, I speak to other people, women love that. They just love Wishman. And I do, too. I think it's loads of fun. My favorite are actually her Greek ones that she lost the scripts to, so she made her own bad scripts in these Greek melodramas. <laughs> Hilarious shit. But the thing with Milligan is, unlike the other two, he was a gay guy in New York City. So if you yeah. know, if you hang around with that culture, you know how catty that gets. You know how funny they can be. So he's a nasty son of a bitch by all accounts. I've seen people that knew him, but it's funny shit. You sit there and watch something like Seeds or like, whoa. Wow, okay. <laughs> There's some funny lines in there. So, you know, beyond the bargain basement, whatever, and the bad recordings, it's like, and it's almost like in the, the talkies where they just had a microphone over the top of the floor, and it has to pick up everybody. There's no, like, close miking or boom mics or whatever. It's just, just the nasty dialogue and stuff going on, all the backstabbing and the cattiness. So if you're into that kind of stuff, he's great. Otherwise, it's like, yeah, I'll stay away with that stuff <laughs> with a 12-foot pole. <laughs> It's total crap. Yeah, I can't get my wife to watch any of this stuff, so I have to do it on my own. Yeah, well, that happens with a lot of stuff, even stuff that we used to watch together, because I guess I showed her too many Italian horror films and giallos and whatever. And in the beginning, she was fine with a lot of this, and then she just started moving away. A lot of the French ones she still likes, but I won't show them to her much, because you know, she's lost her taste for it. She actually tells me that you know life's become so crappy out there, you don't really want to see people having a tough time in any way. I guess. So I get that. I know where she's coming from, but yeah. Let's Unlike get... my my ex, though, I remember I rented out this Annie Sprinkle movie, Oh, Deep Inside, which is a Joe Sarno picture. Yes. And uh, <laughs> we're watching this, and she goes, let's try these things. I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she was a freak. So, all right, test this audio, and uh, let me know how it goes. Yeah, I'm impressed you got somebody that wanted to try out an Annie Sprinkle <laughs> Well, she didn't know what it was, and, and then she never done some things. I'm like, okay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I get yeah, that. we're going to leave it at that. So. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Right. So uh, we'll test this out and be back in a minute. Okay.